That's how you do it. All right, welcome back to Tundra Talk, everybody. I'm Tyler Friel, and uh, pretty excited today to <clears throat> sit down and catch up with the man who taught me that you could call you could call grouse in or ptarmigan. I guess it, either way, it does work for both. <laughs> but uh, that's uh, Mr. Jeff Coe. So thanks for swinging yeah. by, Jeff. Yeah, been, glad been to in, be here. Been intended to catch up with you for quite a while. Yeah, but, it's been uh, a few months. Yeah, I uh, met Jeff um, guiding for Stan Parkerson. Up out way northwest of here, and I don't know, been friends ever since, I guess. Yep. And uh, yeah, I guess I can't really leave the Colin Tarmigan thing or Colin <laughs> Grouse thing unanswered. We were, uh, I don't remember how it came up because we were just sitting around BSing there during the day at Moose Camp, and you had told me something about where, how did you figure that out initially? That's the biggest yep. thing. Um, first time I tried it was we were bear hunting up in alaska range in the winter mm-hmm. uh springtime and you could hear the ptarmigans were clucking real good yeah and um for some reason i just picked up two rocks and clucked them together cluck 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 and this rooster come flying down off the mountain and landed in front of me huh and uh <laughs> since then i've heard other people say the same thing and um apparently um i told that to fish and game well, they were going out to do a ptarmigan study, and I told that to Fish and Game, and apparently they have a some kind of recording they use for calling in ptarmigan for doing counts. Huh, wow. And uh, it might be a real rooster mm-hmm. clucking or something, but anyway, that's how I tried it. And yeah. It was fun. You told me that. I remember we're sitting around camp, and you told me that, and later that day or something, or the next day or something, I was, <clears throat> we had some downtime and was walking over to the lake we were camped at, seen you know, some big kind of river stone type rocks and picked them up ah, i'll see how this sounds in those spruce hens would be around around there you know they'd have that like well or yeah just the pattern of the way they cluck <clears throat> and uh so i i did it and i'll be damned if immediately a rooster didn't start like clucking back at me <laughs> and that sucker came like flew he was looking for me he'd like fly lower and lower in the trees and then down on the ground started strutting around and i couldn't believe it that actually worked so the whole rest of the time we were out there i'd i'd do that and almost every time you know if there was one around you'd tap them rocks together and they'd start clucking and i did it this fall in in moose camp again uh, uh just playing with the client just click 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 and the pretty soon you could hear a cluck cluck and uh <laughs> and pretty soon there's a little there's ju- usually juvenile roosters this time yeah. of year but little juvenile roosters in camp strutting around <laughs> yeah that's one of the it's like one of those old man tricks that no one i'm sure no one ever believes when you tell no, them you i didn't, didn't you didn't believe it i can <laughs> nope. tell by looking dry it's like okay <laughs> it's like <well>. what okay <laughs> yeah yeah i've heard a heard a few good ones but that was yeah it's it's true i'll, I'll testify to that yeah, it's fun <laughs> but yeah so you got you just got back pretty recently from from a whole season up do you did you guys did bears you did bears first and then moose. yeah in august i did a uh, a bear hunt, and then I did one moose hunt this fall, <clears throat> uh, but two weeks out. Yeah, and, and that bear you guys got was you're showing me pictures of was pretty tremendous grizzly bear. It's a nice bear. Um, it was one of the perfect storm type things. The wind was perfect, and 
he come walking up the creek to us, and he, he should have had us the way the creek lays we were hunting in. It's always wind up or wind down, mm-hmm. and we had a wind out of the east, and so it was wind in our face, and so the creek was void of human smell, mm-hmm. and he just happened to walk up, and I had seen his tracks in a trail uh, right across from where we were. We are in a tree stand, uh, and they were a couple days old, but he walked up to the trail and looked at the trail and took one more step and came out in the open, and we got him, and... Uh, so it was a, <clears throat> the perfect storm. You know, that's a lot of yep. times hunting is when I, when all the cards come together. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'd say more often than not. <laughs> yep. Seems like sometimes it takes forever for him, but if you keep at it, then yep. then all that stuff comes. And you guys, you said you were telling me you had some, didn't, Hunter didn't get a moose this year, but, but you guys saw quite a few <clears throat> nice ones. We saw, yeah, I saw um, two or three in the, Mid sixties class, yeah, uh, long ways away, um, and they they never gave us enough time to really watch them for an hour and set up and make a good plan. It was those were kind of pushed. But then we also ran into, th- I think three mid fifties bulls that uh, under a hundred yards had one in at fifty. Um, we had another right at fifty inch, fifty two inch uh, legal bull. Um, for non-resident um, at 52 yards, but he just kind of sprang off the bank and turned around and sprang back in. So yeah. we didn't get a... Well, and it sounds like, <clears throat> I don't know, it's, and that was one thing I wanted to talk to you about was see like how see how the moose season went up there as, fall as, like, as far as like responsiveness. Because it seemed like, I mean, especially compared to last year, seemed pretty bum around here. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was, was hearing cows like the first week of September, normally, you know, you don't even hear them till like the 10th yep. or 10th or after that. Right. Um, and so I was kind of thinking that, that the rut stuff would be kicking off a little early, but it didn't seem like they were paying much attention to it. No, it, there, was, huh? <clears throat> it was really quiet up there. We, uh, we'd hear a rake. We've, we had moose in camp at dark raking within mm-hmm. 50 yards and we couldn't see them. Um, um, but you you try to play with them and they they just turn and walk away and mm-hmm. um, you try light rakes um, little grunts um, tried cow calling uh, most of the bulls we saw this year were already in the company of cows mm-hmm. even early and that seemed to cause a lot of trouble because the bulls aren't going to leave the yeah the cows tip- yeah and typically unless you can get in really tight and and scare them a little bit or challenge them a little bit. Mm-hmm. But um, it was a tough year for calling. <clears throat> and we had, well, we had three guides out, and, and everybody had the same response. We just, we just, you could call, and you just couldn't get them to, to commit to coming in and, and looking at you. Yeah, and I'll take, you know, all bow hunting clients, like that's, yep. that's pretty, especially in that country, you're pretty heavily dependent on get on oh, calling yeah, them. you have to. It's very... I'm trying to think if I ever have just ran into one. I don't think I have just run into a moose in the woods and got him. It's just you got to call him in or yeah, you got to talk to him. Yeah, um, I do a lot of um, uh, like just calming calls where you just like a cover call on mm-hmm. moose and. Um, You'll you, like jump one on a river or something. You can you can float past them and sometimes keep them calm. Yeah. While you're 
trying to get close. And um, this year, they just they take one look at you and throw your head up and go off in a brush. Hmm. And they just uh, didn't have uh, – they just – well, in our area this year, too, we had wolves every night howling. Oh, yeah, that can't – that'll definitely disrupt yeah. stuff, it yeah. seems like, and and make them not, you know, like – Makes they, them quiet. Make them not vocal. Yep. And um, so they were – uh, we had, like I said, we had wolves every night. Every sandbar had wolf tracks on it, and um, and even the client was he's like, man, every moose track has a wolf track in it this year. Yeah, and they sort of did this year. Yeah, and so they were quiet, and and then <clears throat> the way the rut kind of set up, and the weather was a little different this fall. It seemed like it's a little warmer than mm-hmm. normal. Yeah, here too. I mean, we were dealing with mosquitoes till the twentieth. <laughs> yeah, we had, we had no CMs that were just terrible out there. And until the twentieth, uh, in the middle of the day, they just drive you nuts. Jeez, <laughs> yeah, yeah, so. unbelievable. But yeah, so I mean, that's kind of a bummer. That certainly is some pretty neat country. I, I still think the biggest bull I've ever seen was that one you called in oh, with me. Anna. Yeah, um, we uh, we I remember we were taking turns. Like I'd, I'd take her out in the morning, and we'd call. And then you take you'd have take the evening shift and. You guys were down at that one end of the lake, and it was, I mean, probably three-quarters of a mile down there. Yep. And it was just a beautiful, just dead calm oh, yeah. evening. Because I could, me and Marvin would sit out, you know, kind of on the shore fishing for pike or whatever, and I could hear you calling, playing his day that far, and I don't know what we were doing or whatever, and I just heard this, you know. And you? I'm like, that I'm like that doesn't sound like Jeff. <laughs> and I get the spot and scope and look over there and through that one open, that clear, that, uh, I mean, he was bigger than the bull. The next week we saw that one bull that was, we figured was 72 and this one was bigger. Oh, really? And I was just the biggest moose I've ever seen just oh. come glucking down the hill right to you guys. I don't know if you remember one night when you guys pulled back oh, in after, excited. after dark. I was like, how big was he? <laughs> <laughs> and we had him at Fifty or seventy yards or whatever, and never saw him. Yeah, yeah. He just kind of he he's one of the old guys that's not going to just charge in and cause trouble. Yeah, he's, he's made probably made a big downwind circle and and figured out what we were. Yeah, because when he left, he kind of went back the same way, mm-hmm. and he just turned and walked. And you could hear him glucking for a mile back in the woods. Yeah, that's it's exciting when you hear him doing that coming in, and it's equally disappointing when you hear that and you know they're going the other way when they're talking and walking away and talking at you you know it it's yeah like, oh boy here we go yeah that was one bull we had last year that i was sure we were going to get that was never did lay eyes on him but he was uh just raking and glucking and coming in and then i think he veered off because there was another bull back kind of off i'm like pointing my arm in the air back off this way. Then he, yep. I think they ended up, he veered off towards that bull. Cause you could just hear him every step sounded like, wah, wah, wah. and I bet you that <laughs> the moose, um, you know, they'll come into a call, but if they hear another real moose call and they know instantly, like that is an imposter over there, the guy in the woods. And yeah. that's the real deal over there. And they, I think, cause that's their whole life is listening. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they know, when they hear a, when they hear the real thing, oh yeah, and it's uh, it still blows my mind though too because you'll, I mean I've called them in chopping firewood, yep, 
I know guys have called them in, like, setting up camp, like, flapping tarps. Yep. With tarps flapping in the wind. Chainsaws. Yep. You know, it's just like, how can they be so dumb sometimes? And then when you really want them to, <laughs> when you really want it to work, it seems like they, they know what's up. I know Stan's mentioned, <clears throat> mentioned that he thinks they can, you know, the same bull hunt in the same spot year after year. Some of those bulls like get to where they can recognize. Oh, they know. do. <clears throat> I'm cer- certain I can recognize bulls. If you hear the same, if you hear a bull a couple days in a row mm-hmm. and say you call him in and he's a sublegal. Yeah. The next day I, I hear one grunting and I'm going, oh, that's him again. And sure enough, it's him. So I can recognize different bulls. Yeah. And, um, and different bulls act differently. Some of them never talk back at all. Mm-hmm. And um, so they've got their own personalities. Yeah. Um, and, of course, the the little ones, the, the contender bulls, the 50-inch, just legal bulls, mm-hmm. those are the like the 21-year-old, equivalent to a 21-year-old guy. They're going to come in and, and just get rough and whatever and everything. Them old bulls have been through it. They, they're, mm-hmm. just, they're like, no. Nope. I'm not going to go in there and get beat up. Like they're not they're not aggressive till they need to be or yeah. or whatever. <clears throat> I remember had oh it was, it was quite a while back had uh, Troy had Troy on here and he was talking about that bull that after his client had shot that bull and he left him with him that other big bull came and yarded him down threw yep. him down the hill. <laughs> yep. That's a we, we get a, uh, bulls come in occasionally, get another bull come in while we're skinning a moose. Mm-hmm. And they, all of a sudden you turn around, they're standing there looking at you. They yeah. can smell you. They can hear the little deals. And Yeah, it's that's interesting. And it's those things, they they can be pretty intimidating. I remember the last night, it was, it was that year, the last night in camp because I got moved over to the river and Stan left me in the river camp to clean up that night after it was the day oh. after the season closed. <laughs> And I remember, you know, telling those guys, like, if we just be quiet all the, you know, because the natural inclination, you get back to camp and everybody's loud and chattering. Yep. And it's like, man, if you, you know, I'm no expert, but I think if we just be quiet, act like we're hunting all the time, you know, we might not have to go anywhere. Right. Because it's all good country. And yeah, sure enough, that first night alone, I was, I was taking care of some garbage and whatever, heard a heard a bull raking down the river so i got a paddle and started raking and then another bull and then heard another bull i, I think I, it, I had four of them wow responding and one that was upstream on that side of the river he kept getting closer and closer and so finally as when it got dark i just shut up went and did a few more things and i just crawled in my sleeping bag and just zipped the thing up <coughs> and I hear, oh, oh you know i'm like man that thing's right behind camp in that little clearing and uh i could hear him his legs like brushing up against the grass going in there and then he starts raking and tearing stuff up <laughs> just right behind the tent i thought man he's going to he's going to tear the tent up uh, yeah uh-huh. i didn't jump out with my pistol and flashlight and try to run him off i mean i didn't get a great look at him but he's a pretty good bull <laughs> and uh <laughs> anyway, like didn't ran him off a little bit, but then he, he kept woke me up several times that night. And then right at first light, there were two of them fighting right behind camp. Oh, I mean, less than fifty yards behind camp. Yep. So in that meadow out there. Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah, that was pretty cool. I was wishing it was still season, and I had that tag. <laughs> oh yeah. 
the best one I ever called in when I was a kid, the first moose I ever got was um, I was out at a homestead west of town hanging out with some mm-hmm. folks, and uh, I was like 16, and I was down the hill. All the men from the camp were up on the runway working on a bulldozer, and the camp was over maybe a quarter mile to the left <clears throat> on a next ridge over. It's It was a homestead they were building. And I could hear the kids all fighting in camp, you know, arguing about something or mm-hmm. whatever. And I could, clear as a bell, I could hear, it's like 8.30 at night, clear, one of them clear nights. And I could hear them talking and I could hear the men banging <clears throat> wrenches and shovels and all that kind of stuff. And I was, this was in the 70s, and I was playing Kung Fu Fighter the old, from the old movie. And yeah. I was singing the song and everything, walking yeah. <laughs> up the trail, beating a stick on a brush. And I was, I got a challenge call from, oh, just up the hill from me in between the moose was in between me and the guys up on the runway yeah and i was maybe half a mile from the runway and the moose challenged kind of a bleat it's the only time i've ever heard that sound it was like a sheep's bleat but it was super loud Hmm. just a and um and so i poked my nose around the corner and i could see a moose standing in the trail and it was getting dark and um I couldn't see the sights. I had a thirty thirty rifle, mm-hmm. so I put the sights up in the sky and got a sight picture, and I dropped him down, thinking I'd uh, I'd get him in the chest. He was looking at me straight on, and uh, touched it off, and, and sure enough, and dumped him. And, he, and it uh, turned out he was only like 40 yards away. Yeah. I thought he was 200 yards away. Oh. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was a kid and all, mm-hmm. and, uh, and got him. He's a 58-inch bull. Oh, so wow. He's a nice bull. And... Uh, but it is here. I was, you, and when we backtracked him, he had walked within fifty yards of the, all the guys that were working on the cat, hmm. and walked right past them. They must have had their back to the runway or something, and he walked right down the middle of the runway, <laughs> and then into the woods about another quarter mile, right to me where I was calling with that stick. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, it was completely. Uh, I wasn't even calling. I was just. Mm-hmm. It was a walking stick. I was just yeah. beating the trees with it and. <laughs> and, uh, and being a kid <laughs> yeah that's funny Spe- and speaking of like those moose vocalizations i mean everyone know you know your basic <clears throat> cow call and grunts you <clears throat> but you know you guys that have done it heck mm-hmm. we'll put a lot more time into it i mean what are some of those because a grunt's not necessarily just a grunt you know there's a lot of intonation and stuff like that that you yeah. know, a lot of it's beyond my level of experience it um well, there's a different kinds of calls. You know, there's that walk and gluck when they're just walking and talking, mm-hmm. and there's little challenge calls. And I'm, I'm <clears throat> every season, I get more and more confused about yeah. <laughs> what they all are. But I use a, a calming call, just a, a talk call. Yeah. And um, and then I, I use a gluck. Usually, we don't try to. We don't do any cow calls till later in the season, mm-hmm. till after the tenth or fifteenth, or if we hear cows calling and stuff. And then later in the season, it's it's almost all cows, yeah, and everything. But um, I'm not. <clears throat> and then there's a couple different cow calls. There's the irritation call, you know, when they're getting pestered. And that one kind of it's just like a, uh, like oh, a burp. That, that that's the roar. Well, and then there's a roar when the cow's mad yeah. and they yeah. roar. It just stands your hair on end. Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and then, um, but they do kind of a kind of a mewing uh irritated you can tell i heard one one time doing it and walked in and it was a cow with a little 
30-inch bull that was pestering her. Yeah. And she was just mad at him. She's just like getting away. She's kicking at him and everything. Mm-hmm. And um, so sometimes I use that one. If you think there's a bull around, you know, just do the irritated cow thing and a little bit of raking just so they think there's a bull with mm-hmm. you. And and that, that one kind of works for me. The big, long cow calls, the big, long moans mm-hmm. are, a, are a locate. That's what I think the cows use for a locate. At yeah, night, nighttime a lot, and um, and and a lot of times you'll do those and like hunting up up there and up, up off the bluff. You'll do one of them, and all of a sudden you look down there and there's a bull that's been laying in the brush all night long. And you do that, and he'll stand up and look. You know, yeah, from a three quarter mile away, he'll look at you. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, well, mm-hmm. I've noticed some of those um, had several times cows will if you, you're raking and grunting, cows will answer you with that. Sometimes that a big long, kind of waver and moan. There was mm-hmm. that's kind of what uh, I assume it was one of the cows that was with that big bull we saw last year. Um, we never did get, but you know, you go out there in the morning, start raking and stuff, and I, you know, wouldn't hear bulls, wouldn't hear the bulls raking, but you'd hear, you know, cow would just instantly fire back at you. You know, it had to be some sort of a low locator thing, like yep. she's telling you, I'm over she's here, over there, yeah, yeah. And it, <clears throat> You know, a lot of times, too, the cows are looking for the bulls. You know, mm-hmm. they, they're moving around, too, and especially the ones with no calves. Mm-hmm. And they kind of just fall in line with the bulls as the bulls go by. <clears throat> yeah, I've always, you know, it's always kind of been mystif- I don't know, mystifying is the right word. But mm-hmm. you think, you know, and, and when you're trying to call these big bulls, it's like, all right, well, some cow has to be the first one to call, <laughs> yeah. to start calling. So it's like, when does that happen? And it seems like, you know, all of a sudden you're at a certain point when every big bull you see has five or six or 10 cows yeah. with them. Yeah. It's like, you know, what is, do you know, and I've wondered that if sometimes if it's not the cows that come to them. Oh, I think so. I've, uh, we've shot moose and they took off the bull mm-hmm. and, um, the cows just, they just get in line and follow him. Huh. And, um, cause they're going to stick with him. Yeah. And, um, and it works the other way too, where you Cows were the kind of, we had several times this year where the cows were the sentinels and they were yeah. the cows were were blowing it up for us. Yeah, well, and and it, um, you know they still, they think they say with turkeys that it's an unnatural thing for uh, typically it's not the it's not the hens that call the gobblers to to them. It's the hens that go to the toms. Oh, could be <clears throat> yeah. more often than not. So I mean, obviously you get you get bull moose will chase cows down, but I've mm-hmm. I've often wondered how much of it is the cows coming to them. Rather than oh, yeah. them having to haul this harem of cows around to pick up new ones, exactly. And the, um, I, and I believe that um, one of the things I noticed is that I believe that the bulls come together early September, and the bulls are looking for other bulls early mm-hmm. in the season, trying to figure everybody out. <clears throat> and you'll get a group of like three or four bulls, and they may be a mile apart, but they're talking all the time, and they ever they always know where each other's at pretty much. But then they have a circuit; they're they're moving the circuit looking for the cows too. So out where we were hunting, and I've heard it up here, even here in Fairbanks, that sometimes the guys would see three bulls come through for a day, and they disappear. Well, then four or five days later, they come through again. Mm-hmm. And so the bulls are running circuits, looking for cows, and, and looking for the other bulls, actually, yeah. and trying to come together. And then in the meantime, the cows are, some of the cows are coming in. And kind of get falling in line with them a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, like on a five-day circuit or something. Um, 
and that's one way that I think that a little bit of all that happens. And then when the cows find a good feeding spot, and you know, if you look find a feeder pond mm-hmm. or somewhere they're happy, um, the cows kind of maybe slow down a little bit, and the bulls they kind of circle back and kind of keep track of them. And mm-hmm. then as the season goes on, all of course you got all the young bulls are in there first, and all the big bulls are just sitting up on the hill waiting until they all come into heat and all that. And then uh, when then when it's time, the big bulls just come in and take, take charge. Yeah, and um, and so it kind of this year we saw. Almost every bull had two cows with him, hmm. and which was which was what made it hard. Yeah, and um, well, it seems like norm. You know, normally it's it's one of the bigger bulls that'll have most of those cows, and some of those like you know up and comer mm-hmm. forty five, fifty yep. five inch bulls will be compete be the ones main the main ones competing to peel right. a few of them off. And it, <clears throat> it may be that I've seen uh, several times you'd have four or five cows, and you had a. Uh, a couple of contender bulls right at the 50-inch class hanging with them. Mm-hmm. And once in particular up on the Kobuk, uh, we had a lot of a lot of 50-inch bulls hanging around. There was, in for a, like a week period, we probably had six or eight of them hanging in the area. Mm-hmm. And we kept seeing this one big bull go by every, now, uh, every day or every other day. We'd see him pass by, and we could never get him to come into us or anything. And um, what he was doing was bedding on a... He was bedding on a hillside about a mile, one and a half air miles away, and almost every day he'd make that one and a half mile trek into the cows hmm. and make it through the feeder pond with them and hang, and then he would and cycle back out. Hmm. And he had actually had another lake, so it turned into a triangle. He would run that triangle like every two days. Wow. And we finally did get a shot on him, and the hunter actually missed his shot and, and wounded him, and the... Uh, the moose went back to his bedding area over a mile away. That night, he was in his bedding area again, and uh, he hit him in the neck, right in the thickest part of the neck. Yeah, you know, he's shooting a recurve and <clears throat> about a twenty-yard shot. And he, whether he missed a shot or hit a stick, we don't know. But the arrow ended up in the neck. And um, the next morning, we were going down there to his bedding area to see if we could. Hopefully, he had died in his sleep or whatever, you know, because mm-hmm. yeah, it was a hard hit. He got full penetration. 60-pound recurve, uh, just a little bit of feather showing, and um, and a good blood trail leading out of there. Mm-hmm. But um, the next morning, we get back just to the—we're running in a boat down heading down river. He's probably eight river miles away from us, two or three air miles. And um, <clears throat> we saw tracks on the beach, got out and looked. It was him. So he'd been hit in the neck hard, went down the— went down to his bedding area next morning he's already heading back to the cows um and we jumped river bends and trying to get him well we kind of got him pinned into a spot but he just slipped away he was just too cagey and um it turned out he would have been a new number three pope and young moose if we could have got him we hunted for him for three or four days uh about three or four days later we found him again and we <clears throat> he's a cagey old booger. He's across the river. Stan was calling behind us. We were set up in the willows. That moose didn't see us, but he wa- he swam the river, got up on the sandbar with us, and he got about 40 yards from us, and he stopped, and he just looked up the sandbar and down the sandbar and made a loop around us. Hmm. We don't know what he heard, what he saw. If We don't know if he's smelling our tracks in the sand. Hmm. We don't know. And he went right to Stan. 
and uh, we played with him for a couple hours and couldn't get him. Um, we got him on a sandbar. I offered my rifle to the guy because he'd wounded him and everything. Yeah. And, and the guy's like, no, nope, I'm not taking him with a rifle. Um, that's, you know, pretty, he's wanted to do a bow thing. And um, we watched him and about five days later when we're cleaning up camp he had he had six or eight cows right in that spot he was the kingpin even after the wound doing just fine and he was back the next year and um he he was a truly i've got at home i'll see if i can find a picture for you he's 70 inch bull man and um stan being a pope and young measure stood with him for two minutes at 20 yards Mm -hmm. and we have pictures of him and he stands like man that'd be the new Number two or number three. This was ten years ago. Would have been a new number three. Yeah, and Stan's pretty dang good at. He's good at judge, it. <laughs> judging size. I mean, he can base. You know, he can fly. Base pretty much fly over a moose yep. and tell you within a few, within a couple of inches yep. of where what he's going to score. Well, he said, you know, the one <clears throat> bull they had in the river camp there down. He just kind of looked at him and ah, he'd go. I can't remember what it was, but he had it within like two inches, inches of what yep. the what the score was which yeah, that's he, another thing i've never i'm pretty ignorant on on scoring on moose and caribou especially oh caribou terrible <laughs> yeah yeah caribou are the worst but yeah you got and you guys used to get into get into some caribou up up there but they haven't really been coming through yeah it seems like um we did uh one year one of my hunters got a night it, it was the largest caribou uh, in 2005, is the largest archery caribou in the state. Oh, cool! Um, another fellow shot one that was bigger, but it was a um, it was a reindeer off of Kodiak Island. But hmm. they classify them as, as the same. Yeah. But um, th- um, and actually, over the years, they've taken some big caribou up in that country. But yeah. Uh, but it's Brooks Range. There's big caribou everywhere, mm-hmm. and there's you know hundred thousand animals, so you're going to run into you're going to have some big ones every year. You're going to have some big ones, so. But it has changed quite a bit up there on the Kobach. The migration routes have changed a little bit, and um, the, there's a lot of land use uh, areas that we can't go into mm-hmm. anymore, you know, with the park and preserve and the uh, native lands and, and stuff. So it's it's tougher. Yeah. Um, and it's just a stroke of the luck. It's when them caribou come south through the range. If you're in the right valley, you got caribou coming out yeah years. it's like the, you know the classic saying with caribou is either they're there or they're not <laughs> oh yeah yep and when they're not they're not <laughs> they're, no, they're nowhere the last <laughs> caribou hunt i did up there i was five days on the river and never saw one caribou and i never found a track that was newer than a year old wow <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's funny i mean even you know i've been in spots where you'll see you know one where literally, you know, you, one day you can look at everything. You'd be up on the ridge line, look at every single bare ridge top anywhere, any direction around you, and there's caribou on on all of them. And then three days later, you can't find a. You can pick it. You know, look all day and not find a single one. Oh, yeah, or even by the hour. Yeah, they disappear, and you think, well, that's the end of that. And an hour later, you got a hundred of them showing up on ridges here and there, and mm-hmm. and. Uh, yeah, that's another thing I've wondered sometimes is what, you know, say like like the 40-mile herd or any of these big herds, it's like what, <laughs> who's the first caribou to, to decide we're going this this way? Yep. And, you know, they're so spread out, it's not like they could communicate. 
No. You know? But it's like that whole mass ends up yeah, and going in one direction or the other. We hunted the 40 mile last year and this year and in the same drainage. And it was interesting because last year all the caribou were heading to the west. Mm-hmm. And you couldn't get in front of them. And, and we ended up getting caribou. This year they were all heading east. Hmm. So there, and it was the same dates. So they had already changed their migration by a week or so. They had moved out into the whites, yeah. white mountains. In that country, the caribou that we were looking at were seemed to be heading from the 12 mile summit area into the Pinnell Mountain country and mm-hmm. Gnome Creek country. <clears throat> Last year, it was like at the end of the uh, week after opening, they were just getting into the Pinnell country mm-hmm. uh, right before they closed the season. This year, they were already coming out of it. Huh. So they'd made a loop through there for whatever reason, and uh, the winds. On caribou, what's interesting for me is I've hunted up on the North Slope archery quite a bit. They always seem to feed into the wind, and pretty much, unless something pushes them real hard left or right. But if they're just out there happy feeding and -hmm. traveling, they're moving into the wind. Well, as the storm comes through or as a weather front comes through and the wind changes around, I've seen bulls that I thought I could recognize leave and two days later come back from a different direction Hmm. but they're feeding into the wind they're just making like 10 mile diameter loops out there while they're feeding and and moving around and around yeah it makes sense i mean there's not not anything better for them to do (laughs) well yeah they they feed into the wind so they they're looking at the predators Mm -hmm. and all the caribou do is feed and then they lay down and chew their cud and the bulls and then Mm -hmm. they feed some more and they lay down and rest and chew their cud and that's all they do yep round and around yeah well and they're so doggone fast even even at a slow feeding walk you know yep a a, your average guy can't ever catch you can't catch them nope it's it's kind of fun hunting with the young guys and they're like let's go get them i'm like (laughs) help yourself (laughs) if you're looking them at the looking at them in the rear end then there it starts too late yeah you can't or even broadside, you can't, and they're a three-quarter mile away, you can't cover three-quarter mile of tundra and get ahead of them. No. Nope. Um, especially up in a slope, it's really open, and yeah. and they see you coming and, and stuff like that. It's that The caribou are a pretty interesting group. One of the interesting stories I heard was a friend of mine was hunting caribou up on a slope, and it's archery stuff inside the corridor. Sees a there's a herd of eight or nine hundred caribou moving toward him. Mm-hmm. So he laid down in the willows and they hunt with a recurve and hoping for something to happen. One of the first cows that came to him came about five foot away and she made a jump off like a thirty yard jump away from him when she spooked a little bit. The rest of that band of caribou come through and they made and the rest of that band went in that that thirty yard uh, loop. I've heard they can. They might like secrete something or whatever the, when they get. Yep. When they get spooked. Yep. Yeah, and I think that's what it is. And when she jumps, she puts out a little pheromone of some kind, and the the next caribou kind of smells it. Ooh, something's up here, and they'll. And that's also, I think, visual too. Mm-hmm. Even though they're just walking and feeding, all of a sudden, if a caribou does something weird five hundred yards away, everyone's kind of. The rest of the herd's kind of like, wonder, I wonder yeah, what that... we're not going to mess with that spot. <laughs> yep, and they go around. Same with doll sheep. You know, if you spook a bunch of ewes and lambs, every ramen that's invisual is going, hmm, something's going on down there. Yeah, those. Yeah, them especially, they're pretty in tune to what 
what the other critters around or, yep. you know, all, all a sheep has to do is get up and take off running and every sheep in the basin starts getting nervous. And they take <laughs> off too. They're like, well, I'm heading, especially them old rams that just want to, yeah. they've been laying on that hill for 10 or 12 years and they know that something's up. A wolf is running through the herd or a coyote or something. Or Yeah. And that that's something, <clears throat> you know, I don't, I was thinking about this year. You don't, you don't think about it all the time because you're up there for 10 days or 12 days, whatever. But so you get to thinking in the mindset that like of, that that's how the sheep are, but they, they spend their entire life on those same hillsides. Yep. So they, they get to be pretty in tune, which is what can make them pretty tough to, mm-hmm. tough to get. They get so in tuned with what's going on, but yeah, they yeah. know they, <clears throat> that's their whole environment. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they know that something's going on down there that they don't want to be involved with. It's like flashing on sheep hunting. If you flash them with your binoculars by accident. Yeah. The the sheep will spot spot a flash and he'll he'll go hmm there's something's up down yep, there something's up that one t- <laughs> reminds me one time me and my buddy Frank were on a sheep hunt and it was like it's <clears throat> I think it was yeah it was the hunt I killed that ram on we were in September it was almost the middle of September sitting up on this ridge line as the sun setting I look you know look down in the valley below us. And I'm like, son of a bitch, there's a guy down there shining a flashlight at it, you know. Yeah. And it was just water. It was a pool of water that that sun just for oh. like 30 seconds was catching just the right, oh. you know, to make it look like a fl- look like a flashlight. I was pretty worked up there for a minute. It's like, how did someone get down there without us? You know? Oh, darn. The, you know what? The one that surprised me when I was sheep hunting, I bought a... Um Spot and scope. Actually, my wife bought it for me, but a spot and scope with a 45-degree eyepiece yeah, on it. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> One time I had it set up, and I was looking at something, and I walked out forward, and I turned around and looked back, and I was looking right in the lens. Mm-hmm. It was brighter than a sunlight because it was picking up the sunlight oh. from up at an angle. Oh, yeah. And um, I remember reading the books that I think it was a Tony Russ book or something on sheep hunting years ago, and they talked about it might not have been his book, but it was a sheep hunting book. But uh, how they're really careful about putting their scopes up and looking through the scope so they don't pick the light up and send that send a signal six or eight miles away. You know, you're looking at a ram three miles away on a yeah deal. The ram's laying up there, and all of a sudden he sees a bright pinpoint of light out here. Yeah, and I think they they pick up on that kind of stuff. Oh, I think they very they very well could. Yeah, you get the wrong right or wrong circuit, yep. you know, <clears throat> conditions. Well, it's just I mean. Even just any, you know, LED flashlight during the daytime, you can see it from several miles away with the naked eye usually. Oh, yeah. Um, And I know, I mean, I know I'm super careful about trying, which is one reason I like a straight eyepiece. Um, Mm -hmm. I I try to be super careful about skylining myself, too. I think that's that one gets a lot of people, especially if you're not careful with angled ones. With angled ones, you can usually, if they have have a, a ring that you can loosen and, and turn yep. that barrel to where you're kind of looking up instead of having to pop your head over the top of the scope to yeah to get it down but yeah i'm always often paranoid wondering if i'm you know get sending reflections up there or, mm-hmm. or whatnot but yeah also to sort of you know, critter critters are goofy but they <laughs> another one is if you're late night when you come in sheep hunting and you're you're uh, lighting your stove for a so dinner, mm-hmm. that spark off a, a Bic lighter is like a 
like lightning strikes from a mile away hmm. when it's pretty dark. Out. Yeah. So you could just see where a guy's just trying to get his deal lit, and and three miles away, the sheep are like looking at you, going, "What the heck's over there?" You know? Yeah. Because it's I've seen it down in southeast one time. We on a deer hunt. Actually, it was out of Valdez. <clears throat> the guy didn't come in until after dark. He was up in the woods hunting, and uh, we saw uh, three strikes, and we thought it was an SOS coming from oh. the be- coming from the beach. Well, he was. This was back in the seventies. He was trying to light a cigarette. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and he did three sets of three, and we thought something bad was going oh, on. Oh yeah, and, and we were looking for him anyway, and so we jumped in the skiff and run in there, and and we're like, are you? We thought maybe he'd sprained an ankle or something yeah. or whatever, and and he's like, he's just sitting there standing on the beach smoking a cigarette. <laughs> yeah. But it was it was surprising how bright of a light. Just a striker of a cigarette lighter. Oh yeah, well, I mean, you get a light, you strike. You could see someone strike a match from a mile away if it's you know yep. overcast, mm-hmm. dark night. Yeah, it's, which I was, I meant to ask you, kind of unrelated, backing up. How long have you been up here, Jeff? Fifty years this 50 year. Fifty years. Yeah, I uh, moved up here. And my dad was he retired out of the Air Force and. Went to work for the university out of Poker Flat mm-hmm. in 69. He was up here in the 60s helping him build the Poker Flat Rocket oh, Range. Oh, gotcha. And then when he retired, he went out there as a launch officer. So we came up in 69 and uh, been here ever since. Yeah, a few things have changed since then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, quite a bit. I was thinking about it today. Uh, in the 70s, we weren't allowed to hunt moose in this area yeah. because Old Murphy Dome Road was the boundary. And Clary Summit was a boundary, so you had to drive 25 miles out of town to, before you could hunt moose. Because that was still, wasn't that still, I was still in the days when they were recovering them. Yep. From, you know, because they had, from like the, the market hunting days, you know, they were still. Yep, and they had done a bunch of, uh, supposedly a bunch of wolf control stuff in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they were just starting to kick in good again. And and actually, there was great numbers of them, boy, that uh, the winter of 70, 71 was a big snow year. Yeah. And uh, the Chattanooga Valley had, I, I don't know what the true numbers are, but um, back then we had a November hunt. Mm-hmm. And uh, you could drive from Chattanooga Lodge up to the end of the road at that time was 41 mile. That's where the maintenance quit. Mm-hmm. And in that uh, 10 mile stretch of road, you could see 100 moose <clears throat> yarded up. Yeah. And, uh, there was, for some reason, there was, in November that year, there was. 200 or 500 moose in that 10 mile stretch of valley Jeez, it was incredible yeah that was i know my you know my dad and uncles talk about talk about that saying my dad was born in 59 and they yeah i mean they talked about remembering like it was like you would go to jail for shooting a cow moose oh yeah back yeah. in those days um and they that was right i don't know all my dates exactly but that was the era when they were really kicking in the I mean, they're poisoning wolves and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, some of the other old timers talk about, you know, that used to hunt up in where Gates of the Arctic Park is now. Yep. You know, so it used to be really good sheep hunting up there because they'd go, you know, them and all the outfitters would go up there and airplane the heck out of wolves. And just oh, the, yeah. way, the way the country is, the, you know, the sheep are pretty susceptible to predation if the wolves move in there on... Uh, no, I mean, after they made it a park, the sheep populations <laughs> tanked and tanked and tanked. And you yep. know, now that Western Brooks Range doesn't have near the sheep it used to. But yeah, and they, the 
anyone that's been around, it seems like plain as day. I'll tell you, well, it's the the golden age of you know, like the late '60s and '70s and '80s. The hunting up here was a direct result of all that predator control. I met a gentleman. He had Dinana Air Service. I think his name was Don Lotion. That could be a wrong name. But um, they went up in the 50s and 60s and hunted on the North Slope for mm-hmm. wolves, and they were getting 150 wolves a year. Yeah. And uh, and he brought them back to town and for the bounty. In those days, it was bounty. Mm-hmm. And um, they could not sell one wolf hide. Nobody wanted a wolf hide. Mm. And so they ended up tanning them all and cutting them into Parker Ruffs and 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 the feet were real popular for making mittens and, yeah. and mucklucks and uh, and they made that's how they made their money but it took them two years to get them tanned and yeah sold but <laughs> they were they were getting 150 uh 150 a year oh yeah in in the, like the month of march and april yeah and you get you know they're at the end especially up north they when they seems like they're not really starting to rub hard yet yeah you get some real primo i mean those arctic wolves like the best wolf hides I've ever dealt with have been from around like Arctic Village, oh. Southern Southern Brooks, or I guess it goes all the way out across because I dealt with a bunch of them from, I put up a bunch of them from around Norvik, you oh, know, yeah. out on the Western coast. But that, yep, that kind of lat, be latitude, yeah, flat. That mm-hmm. that latitude of of wolf is just a real primo wolf, and I know a lot. You know, old timers say a lot of those. The outfitters that used to kind of take care of their areas up there and shoot them every spring, they wouldn't even pick them up, oh, you know, because they're just yep. doing predator yeah, just control. That's what they're doing, yep, just getting them, like, well, the same with the ranchers and the coyotes, you mm-hmm. know, they're just. Well, and even like, you know, I think they, that's, I think that's why the 40-mile caribou herds is doing so good, at least yep. up till now. They quit, they quit doing all that aerial wolf control, I think this, I think. I don't think they did any in there. They shut it down this last year. They did it for like seven years or something like that. Right. And now all of a sudden, the, the caribou herd's like 30,000 more animals than they thought it was. Yep. <clears throat> and it took off good. And uh, now, and there's still just as many wolves as when they started, but breaking up all those packs and shooting the crap out of them right before calving season, I, I don't think there's any debate that that's oh, it's gotta great, help. For the, great for the moose and caribou. The other one that's interesting was when we were kids, there was not many grizzly bears in the Fairbanks area. Yeah. It was a big deal to see um, uh, a grizzly bear track. If, like up Back in those days, we spent all our time up on the Steese Highway, 12-mile mm-hmm. summit. Back in the at 42-mile McKay Creek, used to be called the White Mountain Trail. Yeah. And um, that's where we hunted. It was back in that country and and played around and stuff. And but. We never saw a grizzly track, and it was it was a big deal if somebody spotted a grizzly track. Hmm. And uh, now they're just everywhere you go. There's grizzly tracks. It's, yeah, um, I've taken people on four wheeler rides behind Clary Summit, and one day see um, two or three or four fresh tracks and tracks in my tracks three hours later. So, yeah, and it's like wow, there's a lot of bears around. Yeah, there definitely is. And I don't know if that's you know, I, I don't know. I'm no expert, so I don't know. <laughs> Probably it would only be speculation. You know, you wonder if some of that was from from the poison. They did a, a ton of poisoning and stuff. You know, mainly targeting wolves, but everything Everybody's everything with sharp get teeth gets it. Yep. Um. So yeah, that's pretty interesting. I mean, I know my. I don't recall them. 
if they said there was, I know it's just that there was a lot more moose back in the days. My grandpa and dad, you know, dad, when he was a kid, they'd go, they hunted up the steez quite a bit. Like they, when Gnome Creek was just, you know, two track getting in there, yeah. they'd hunt in there and, you know, he'd talk about coming back from the, the 40 mile country on the Taylor side with, you know, they go up there and shoot 14 moose yeah. and you bring them all back on big flatbed trailer and. Mm-hmm. You know, they lived uh, um, in Lamita over there off College Road and the whole, you know, whole neighborhood had come over and yeah. cut moose for, for a couple of days and divvy it all up. And Same with the 40 mile caribou with the guys that go up there and everyone, and back in those days in the early seventies, we could shoot three mm-hmm. and, um, and even up on Cleary, uh, Eagle Summit, um, you know, everybody would line up their old two wheel drive pickups with campers on them and. And the herd would come through, and everybody would get their three. Not yeah. everybody, but they'd get a lot of them, and uh, and, and load them up, and away they go. And those numbers, what it right now is just about like I remember the last big herd that came through in 1970 or 71 was kind of like what the 40 miles acting like now for the yeah. numbers of animals and and where they're traveling, yeah, and stuff. And uh, back. It was kind of interesting because back in 1970, 71, the big herd come through just like it had forever and ever. Mm-hmm. And um, the next year, they never came back. They just turned and went a different path. Yeah. And, and it took about 10 years before caribou started showing up again. To, um, in 1979, I was working up on Eagle Summit in a gold mine, and I saw fresh caribou tracks. It's the first ones I'd seen in up there in nine years. <laughs> And yeah. Now they're back again. Well, it's weird how that works. You know, herds will combine and go different directions and just change their patterns mm-hmm. <clears throat> seemingly randomly. Well, like there used to be, it seems like, well, you would probably remember, see, I heard there was used to be a herd that would kind of yard up right out, outside Fairbanks for the winter a lot of times. Um, that was where, I can't remember what stores, it's, you know, some of that new development. Oh. Newer development is that used to be just woods that my dad said they used to just yard up well, pretty that, close to town. And I don't remember that, but I do remember we when we first moved here, we moved up on Hagelbarger Road. Mm-hmm. And um, as kids, we lived in the woods. You mm-hmm. know. Anyway, we found lots of fresh caribou sheds on Hagelbarger Road in the, um, 69, 70, 71. Yeah. We never saw any caribou there. The sheds were all like mid-60s sheds, mm-hmm. four- or five-year-old sheds, but there was caribou sheds up on that ridge. So they'd been there um, within five years. Yeah. Um, kind of like right where Mark Acres or where the Trap Club is now. Uh-huh. That used to be kind of the pass because the Steese Highway was there, and that used to be the pass where everybody would kind of go. Yeah, because this is before the, the you know, the, before the, the new Steese yep. goes is through there. Yeah. <clears throat> Boy, that had a... Even since I've been here, you know, 17 years, the Fairbanks has grown and changed oh, changed yeah. a lot. Well, and you th- you know talk about like the Frank Glasser days when they there's articles in there of of uh, big giant herds of them down by Heatwood Yard up for the winter around Healy. Yep, and uh, and back in Black Rapids country, mm-hmm. that whole face of the Alaska Range was must have been just caribou everywhere. Oh yeah, and. Uh, even in the eighties, I we've hunted behind ferry, and there was just tons of caribou around. It was an open hunt for everybody, mm-hmm. and it was an October hunt, and so it was all snow machines and four wheelers, and 
There's just everywhere you go, there's caribou popping out. Yeah. And now that's pretty tough country to find a caribou in. Yeah, it seems like that, you know, and I don't spend a lot of time running around the, the front north north edge of the Alaska Range, but there, there's caribou there, but not not big herds of them no, like, like you hear of in the past. Well, and I got pictures of my uncle and them at that, you know, the, the magic bus or whatever down there in Healy. That was one, you know, one of their hunting camps mm-hmm. growing up and... I think the pictures I have look like from the 80s, late 70s, early 80s, with a bunch of caribou yep. piled up in their pickup trucks yeah. you know, right next to the bus. Yeah. Um, in the 60s, <clears throat> the caribou used to like come out of the park. If you go a little bit farther west out to Lake Machumna country, mm-hmm. they would always the guys would always get a few caribou, and it looked like they were leaving the park and heading over... Um, there's a mountain out there called Bichatini, which is a high mountain. Mm-hmm. It seemed like they were heading out that way, hmm. but it was like 69 or 70. I heard of a couple hundred come through. They saw them at the lake and they, as they passed through. And I haven't spoke with anybody from out there in a long time, but um, they've never done that since. Hmm. Um, in the late 70s, we would see caribou on the north side of the Alaska Range right in that country but they never large numbers so like there's no large numbers of them in the park or in the stampede trail area mm-hmm. and or that whole northern side that the numbers of caribou just or wherever they went who knows if they who knows maybe they broke away and it seems like i heard that at one point that tr- that herd combined with another one yeah I, I could see it going uh, i could see them guys that herd going Nelchina. Mm-hmm. i could see it going 40 mile Oh yeah, it wouldn't be nothing for him to go cross cross through that mm-hmm. that pass up the Ninana River over to the Nelchina side. Yep, yep. So um, just a hard day's walk is about all it would be for them. Yeah, two days of grazing. And yeah, there. <laughs> yeah. Once the rivers froze up, and they travel. Even uh, the ones I saw at Minchumina back in those year uh, in the late seventies were they're in a black spruce. They're not up on the ridges. It was it, we were snowshoeing. It was tough snowshoeing that year. Hmm. We're running trap line, and uh, we're seeing them from the air as we're flying in yeah. and out. But um, uh, it was deep snow, and them caribou down in the black spruce, deep snow. And they, they didn't seem like they were feeding. They were traveling somewhere, but hmm. they were feeding as they went. But they weren't herded up in any good spot. They were just going someplace. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. I saw the same thing up at Bettles. In the late 70s, where the caribou were coming out of the, for some reason, they were coming out of the Brooks Range, and I think it's the John River, or the, whichever fork of the Koyukuk that is, but you could fly 10 miles north of the village in, um, of Bettles, and um, there was five or 6,000 caribou up there, hmm. and they were living right on the river, huh. and uh, um, where they were going... And we saw them out farther out in the flats toward the Yukon that same year. Um, they're just out traveling around in the black spruce. And uh, it's weird. Sometimes <laughs> I've oftentimes thought, man, you know what? Some critters, what just tells them to get up and and yeah and go somewhere? Yep. You know, it's not that often, but occasionally you just see a critter that's way out, of, like you are a long ways from where you should be. <laughs> I've seen muskox tracks on the Yukon River. Um, upstream from Circle City. Oh wow! And uh, I know I've seen. I know I've talked to guys who have seen them significantly south of the Brooks Range. Yeah, you know, or, or significantly south of the pass. You know, mm-hmm. or that polar bear that wound up 
in Fort Yukon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not a walkabout. Well, then no, it was it was last winter? I think that uh, I think it was actually Hollinsworth that killed that polar bear in Arctic Village, trying to get into his cabin or something like uh, that. Yeah, that one didn't really make the news, but no, I just, I didn't. I just heard about it here recently. Yeah, and, it was uh, funny because I heard about oh, a polar bear killed in Arctic Village, and I don't know something told me I don't I don't know him very well, but I've I put up a bunch of his wolves. Um, he's, you know, Hollinsworth, the guy's name, seems like a really nice guy. And he just, he, has, like, it just, I just shake my head sometimes. One time brought in like 10 wolves. Oh, yeah, just shot them out by the dump. <laughs> you know, <laughs> all just go, some of the most gorgeous wolves I've ever handled oh, or put up. You know, I think in that bunch he had, you know, a couple, had every color. And even the gray wolves up there. Just the quality of fur up around that country is so nice. The grays are that, you know, salt and pepper, not this tawny red coyote red-looking wolves yep. that we got right around here. But you had, you know, gray, gray ones had one or two white ones, a black, like black and and one or two blues oh, wow. out of the bunch. It was just unreal. But, yeah, it was, so it was interesting. Yeah, I think it was him that ended up, you know. Go figure, one polar bear running everywhere just to try to break into somebody's cabin. Well, that's the same. <clears throat> when that one came into Fort Yukon, I was working up there at that time. And mm. I, was, I wasn't in Fort Yukon that week. But anyway, so I, and I'm an armchair biologist, so I try yeah. to figure this stuff out. And But that's uh, Fort Yukon's about 250 air miles from the coast. Mm-hmm. And if, if you go right up the Chandelar River through Arctic Village and Venati and all that country, yeah. it points right at the... Um, Mountain wise, it's not much of a. There's nothing up uh, mountain wise. It's a, it's a good path. Yeah, there's valleys coming off the coast, heading up to the mountains, and just go through one pass, and you're on the south side. And you're on basically. the south side, and I mean, I've never been in that country to hunt or anything, so I really don't know how tough those mountains are. But when you just look at a map, it's like it's a no brainer. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's only 250 miles, so that's. Um, I've read stories where they've tagged links. In Lake Kalani, Canada, and ten days later they caught him in Fort Yukon. Oh, wow! Um, and that's just uh, walking and eating and and a cat's not really you know a critter that's known for having a huge at least lynx you know that I yep. that I was aware of aren't widely known for having a huge wander range you know no. I mean they're just kind of a smaller scale. <laughs> I've gotten on lynx tracks down in. Um, down in um, Yannert River drainage, mm-hmm. and that lynx, uh, he went straight for like fifteen miles and never never stopped. Wow! And uh, well, I've heard I've heard that guys you know riding snow machines, goofing around down you know down at Cantwell or whatever, cut cut fresh Wolverine tracks, follow them all day and never catch up to them. <laughs> I've followed know? Wolverine tracks that were pretty fresh when you put your hand in them. They were these tracks were fresh. I followed that Wolverine for twenty two miles. Man. <laughs> and he finally dove off into Willowbrush, and and I didn't want to follow him with the snow machine anymore. Yeah. But it was 22 miles. He'd dip into the brush and dip back out on the trail. Yeah. It was one of them perfect days. It was two inches of fresh snow, and I, there was and his tracks were the only tracks. And, yeah. Uh, and he went 22 miles and never stopped. <laughs> That's unreal. Yep. Yeah, those things are just like per, just perpetual motion machines. Oh, and, and they're just loping. They're not even running hard. No. Yeah, and the, and then the stuff that you see them in the mountains, you know, straight down, 
cliffs basically right up the other side and mm-hmm. you know i mean most of the guys will see them all the ones i've seen not in a trap or sheep hunting yep you know so they they they're they like that high country but i don't know so we've caught some like down in down in the flats country too so they definitely will <clears throat> they'll roam around quite a bit the neighbor kid caught one in the chetnica valley about 10 or 15 years ago his dad asked me if i'd go out and show him some little bit about trapping mm-hmm. and uh one of the things we did was we cut down a bunch of birch little birch trees and willow trees and made a big pile of brush so the rabbits could find it and then we mm-hmm. hung a bunch of lynx snares around it and mm-hmm. it just kind of a self-feeding bait pile and yeah. uh, he came back in a week later with a about a 32 pound male wolverine that got Jeez. caught in the lynx snare oh, and man. they were the cheapest snares you could buy in town and we wired them on with three strands of mechanic wire just like we do a lynx yep. snare and and I had him wire them up tight, up high, yeah. and everything. And he come in, and he's like, "You, you got to help me with this." <laughs> like, wow, kid, that's pretty good. That reminds me of all. There was uh, I helped helped kid skin a Wolverine. It was, I mean, I didn't weigh it, but it was over, you know, pushing forty pound Wolverine, oh, which man. is about as it, yeah. about as big as they get. Yep, um, big male, and he had caught him in a, a lynx cubby snare. He, I think he just made like a walkthrough, built a walkthrough cubby. But this snare was like, you know, which will work for cats and everything, but just the hoboist snare, you know, yep. used just like washers for, yep. for locks on it. Yep. <laughs> and what I think saved him was this Wolverine got hung up and jumping around and jumped over the cubby or something and hung himself where he couldn't keep his feet on the he couldn't yep. fight it and twist it because otherwise he would have just twisted that cable right off you know yeah <laughs> i mean they're they're pretty tenacious things but yeah i mean just the the dumb luck sometimes i'll take i'll take luck any day oh i lost one the, i lost a wolverine one time it was, uh, it was years ago on a martin pole and it was I don't know, kind of, it was one of my early Martin poles before I started making them real small. You know, like a lot, after talking to a lot of the old timers, you know, you know, about a two inch diameter dead spruce pole for your Martin pole. Mm-hmm. seems like the females don't want to climb it. Right. Aren't as apt to climb it as the, so you, you tend to catch more males and females, which yep. is what you want. Anyway, it was one of my old poles and it was about a four inch diameter or maybe not that, maybe three inch diameter I'm guessing my like iron pipe size mm-hmm. gauge, about three inch diameter. Uh, I guess if I'm talking iron pipe, it'd be three and five eighths. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, dead spruce pole. And I'd had this Martin pole for a while and it was always, you know, like sometimes you have a Martin pole that's just a producer year yep. after year. For some you reason. You could have one 20 yards down the trail either way and you might not catch anything in it, but that one pole yep. seems to produce. And uh, I came putting up to that thing one day and looked at it and my martin pole's gone like it's chewed off at where i got it wired to the tree you know as i had the trap the number one anchored on the top and i can't remember what brand of number ones these were long springs but they were a pretty stout spring stouter than like a victor i kind of preferred the victors actually because they didn't you know you were less you were less apt to have a martin twist off if you got him by the toes um but anyway, I had this it just chewed off right there at the tree in a big drag circle around the base of the tree. And I'm like, what in the heck? <laughs> you know, and I'm thinking the only thing that could do this is a wolverine. So 
Um, and it had, you know, about an inch of fresh snow on the trail. And I see his tracks were as big as a big Tomcat's. Oh, yeah. Yep. You know, so he was a bit, as high as that was, he had to be a big one to be able to get his hind feet on the, on the solid snow underneath the pole. But I uh, just broke my heart. I didn't, he, he drug about three feet of pole off with him. Oh, and no. I followed him for a mile, as long as I could follow him, you know, it was about waist deep snow for me walking and even with snowshoes, it was, uh, it walking through burnt, you know, it was about a five-year-old burn. So yeah, just a freaking mess. I never did catch up with him. He, he hung up one spot for just, didn't even get it scratched down to the dirt. Oh. So I, I'm sure just, you know, he just was caught by a couple toes and as soon as they, as soon as they got froze, he, He's probably he pulled them off. But, uh, yeah, it still makes me sick thinking about that. <laughs> you know, just unintended, caught him in a Martin pole. If, in, you know, of course, you play the game. Oh, if I'd been up here yesterday, would he have still been in there, you know? And, well, them old Wolverines are tough. I skinned one a couple of years ago. A guy brought in that had no front feet. Wow. I mean, they're just... I've seen him quite a few times with missing toes that are all healed up, but. And he was healed up. Did he look like he had lost his feet to injury or maybe born that way? I think he had lost them. Yeah. I don't know that, you know, born that way that he would have been able to make it. Well, I I caught a Martin one time that only had three legs Mm -hmm. and it was a female. And when I skinned her, and of course she was caught on a good foot. Mm -hmm. So I was going to turn her loose because it was at the point where, um, I wanted to let the females go if I yeah. could. But anyway, I, so I wasn't able to do it. But when I skinned her out, her she was born with no lower front leg. Interesting. Uh, you know, of course, I'm not a vet or a doc, but she had no scar tissue, mm-hmm. no ripped muscles. It was just the end of the bone looked really perfect. And then all the muscles came in from the upper side. And uh, I think she was born that way. Yeah, them critters can get around pretty doggone good on three Yep, <clears throat> on three legs. But yeah, this this Wolverine, he had, uh, you know, I don't know if he got caught in wolf stuff, wolf gear or whatever, just twisting or <clears throat> just because. And the thing about them, they'll just twist, they'll just fight and fight and fight and fight. They won't stop, yeah. you know, until they twist something off. And but he was apparently still getting around. He was yeah. still in good shape. Oh, <laughs> but I caught a couple of Wolverine in a. Um, a gang set that I'd made for coyotes. My, I was doing my own predator control thing where I was going to catch every coyote I could down in yeah. the sheep country. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I ended up with some moose heads. Guys give me, so I carried the moose heads in and t- wired them up and everything. And and then um, it was the end of the season. I was going to pull the sets. It was coming. It was 1st of February, and uh, it had rained. And so when I got there, there was no snow on the ground up in the hills. Mm-hmm. And I looked, and my whole bait pile was gone. And I thought, well, I hope a grizzly bear didn't wake up and yeah. and carry away. Because I knew I had I had the bones of two or three moose and just a big, nice big bait pile. Mm-hmm. And I had gang set it with maybe a dozen coyote snares around it. And so I'm looking in there, and I had a twenty two rifle, and I'm like, oh, great. This is going to be fun. And looking around and i see a patch of brown fur back in there and i'm i'm like oh my this bear's laying right on the bait so i get to looking at it a little closer it was a wolverine <laughs> and he had gotten caught in a coyote snare wrapped himself around the tree same thing and left himself where only his back feet could touch mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm i'm thinking jackpot that's a cool day yeah and i'm 
over there getting him unhung, taking him out of the snare and everything, and I'm looking at snares around like this, and I look over in the corner, there's another wolverine hanging in the oh, corner man. the exact same way. And I was like, unbelievable. And there was a third set of tracks there. Mm-hmm. And um, I tried um, – there was another one or two other wolverines that were using. There was four wolverines using that bait pile, huh. wow. and um, I could never catch on any of the rest of them. But which is fine. Yeah, I like leaving seed. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> no, that, that's a pretty good day if you can you can hang up two of those. And and it was the same thing. It was the cheapest at the day. It was I bought a dozen eleven dollar snares from Sportsman's or something. And you know, there's cheap snares because I'm just trying to catch coyotes. Yeah. And, Cheapest snare you could buy, three strands of mechanics wire holding them onto a tree. <laughs> but it, basically, they wrapped around and hooked over a little branch, and so both of them had their feet hanging off the ground. Their hind feet were just touching. Yeah, and I well, know, uh, you know, guys that that are real experienced will say setting snares. I mean, I guess we're getting not too far off from trapping season. Yeah, um, you know, a I think having if you can anchor them to something that has some flex, you know, mm-hmm. like a an alder. It seems like those black spruce saplings are primo. They're strong. Oh yeah. You know they, yep. they have some. Fl- they're not going to break. They're they're but they're they have a bunch of flex, mm-hmm. so they can't ever like get a good bite against that wire. Right. And then having other other trees or whatever yep. or a bunch of brush right next to there, so that that the, it'll wrap up on and get hung up because that's seems like the quickest. The quickest kills with those snares if they got stuff they can, if they can quickly up. quickly run out of cable so yep. they can't fight it and they can't make a run at things you yeah can, they can't make a three foot run get mm-hmm. to the end of the snare I know that's a big deal with with wolf stuff even if you just have you know two trees or something you know I mean I've talked to guys who've caught them almost basically out in the wide open just seeing a couple oh. little trees or pieces of alder that they would go and and walk circles around and just have a white painted snare hanging off the side and yep. end up hanging them up and they wrap it up real quick. And, and yep. then you just, they just run out of cable. They can't, can't fight it anymore. I caught them in, um, um, all I had was link snares, like three X link snares. It was mm-hmm. back when I was a kid and it, uh, we were out at the homestead and out in the Cosin river and heard the wolves howling. And so I, Went down there to set up, make a quick set. It was October. It was season, but it was October, and mm-hmm. we thought we just. And actually, we were kids. We were just having fun, and all I had was five link snares, and so I just did a little gang set. And of course, we'd shot a moose that year, so I took the head down and tied it up and put the five snares around. Next morning, hundred and ten pound male in there, <laughs> in the <laughs> in the little tiny spruce trees. Yeah. yeah, same thing. But I do them high. Yeah, that's the thing. You anchor them. You anchor them high. That way they can't pull. And then those, and it gives them more flex. You yep. know, I don't. It's. <clears throat> I think if they can't, if they, they can't fight it like that, even a sixteenth inch cable. Yep. If you get them, if you get a good catch on them behind the in the throat there, that they just can't. There's nothing they can do, <laughs> and it's going to be over quick. Years ago, a guy was recommending to me. They were using ten foot long snares. He wanted them up, and he recommended going high mm-hmm. and giving them a 10-foot run. Hmm. So when they got caught, and I never did catch one with one of those rigs, but and I tried it, but um, he said that, it, and it was li- little tiny cable. And um, he thought it would, and this guy's a pretty good trapper, so um, he thought it would 
dig in deeper and they were using the springs on yeah. the locks and stuff and um I just never could buy buy it and, and I never did catch a wolf in the, in that setup. Yeah, I would think I it seems like I heard of a Canadian guy that was swore by he only used 16th inch cable snares with I know he used that little that little spring on the cam lock to mm-hmm. keep you know basically it doesn't give at all. Right. And then uh and keeps tension on the lock. And I can't, I want to say he was using those power rams, which I've never oh. used one. It looks to me like basically a 330 Conibear spring yep. that's set. And I mean, I know looking, you know, seeing pictures, guys are posting a lot of guys in Alberta, you know, coyote snaring down there, just flat murdering the coyotes with those things. And they just swear, some of the, at least the guys I've seen just swear by those power rams. Yep. I mean, you There's know, no that struggle. It's, it's over right now. You know, they suck that snare down, especially if you get a good catch. And I think if you got a good catch on a wolf, but I think the trouble with 16th inch snares, if you got a bum catch and they had time to fight it, I think it would cut them up pretty bad. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I've been, you know, for a few years using those uh, those ones Dean Wilson Jr. was making because I couldn't get them. You know, you couldn't, couldn't hardly build them for that, but they already come wound with the, the nine wire attached, mm-hmm. you know, a certain like what six, eight feet of whatever yeah. feet of nine wire with um use a trapper's bender to spool up the end of them. So then the end of the cable just runs through that spool and you got your nuts yep. you know, squashed crimped on, on yep. crimped on there and so you've got a, a swivel so they can't mm-hmm. you know, can't put any torque on that nine wire and then you open them up and the and the loops are just the right perfect size and he I, I think he was using Thompson snare components oh. um which they seem to hold the really like nice round the, the, loop yep nice loop yep but those snares are so fast to set up too and i, I like them for even cats or anything i mean you just yeah. you unloop your nine or eleven wire and yep anchor it and then you open it up it's the right size and you use that stiff wire to just position it right it. where you want exactly, it exactly yeah yep that's um that's why i got away from them long ones um, yeah i ordered them out of the states and ended up uh, they weren't that expensive, but they were something. I got a couple dozen of them. I ended up, there was enough cable in them that I could cut them and make two snares with number nine wire. Oh, of, yeah. Out of one, because you got to loop them, and then you got to do a support wire, and mm-hmm. it's, it's a big, big pain. But those, I love the number nine loops where you just open it up. That's the right size loop. Reach it out, twist it around the tree. You're done. You oh, know, yeah. You're two minutes or less. And, uh, well, and sets that you sets that guy, you know, talking about some of these guys that are really just <clears throat> murderers as far as catching catching wolves. You know, they're snare. You know, it's not uncommon for their gang sets for snare to have fifty snares in one set. Right. You know, and you can't you can't do that if 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 it takes you a long time to set them up. If it takes you five minutes of snare, that uh, fifty. Uh, I guess I'm tired. I can't do the math. Two and a half hours in a <laughs> yeah. You know, you're two and a half hours in a set. Oh you know, yeah. You need to be into a set and get her done and get out in 30 minutes if you can on a big you know big gang set. Yeah. If you're going to cover a lot of ground. Yep. Now now you got me all jonesing to start trapping. <laughs> me, me I too. didn't. Get, I didn't get hardly any steel out last year. In the year, uh, since I've had kids, I haven't really hit it very, and I never really, to be fair hit it really hard but <clears throat> i trapped quite a bit there especially before before i had kids and then try to do enough to just to say i'm still trapped oh yeah but 
I've turned into the guy that just skins everybody else's stuff for them. Yeah, actually, that's kind of where the direction I wanted to go because I'm tired of snowshoeing. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, the, the pay is definitely, you make more money skinning other people's stuff. Yeah. It seems like. But, man, it's fun. I enjoy getting out. Hopefully, hopefully we'll get the rivers froze up a little earlier this year than last year and get to get out and run around. I was going to ask you, too, I, um, some of the stuff I can't remember – yeah, I've known you for a while. I can't remember if I even asked you. When did you get started bow hunting? Because um, <clears throat> that's the majority of the guiding you've done is, is bow. All, all my guiding has been archery. Um, about 18, uh, I've been, I've had my assistant guide license about eight, I got it in 2001. So that's 18 years. And I've had my registered guide license about five or six now but anyway i started bow hunting and time about, flies I've, i know i've known you since before you had your registered license yeah um my wife bought me a, a compound bow a friend of mine uh was a bow hunter uh, just you know with his friends and anyway my wife bought me a compound bow about 1984 actually as kids my dad bow hunted when we lived in new mexico Mm-hmm. And it was all recurves back then. So we had, I've had, a, I played around with bows since I was five or six years old. Mm-hmm. We were out chasing something. And, uh, but then I kind of got back into it when I was about maybe 20, about 30 maybe. Yeah. And then uh, I did about 10 years of compound stuff. Then I went to the traditional stuff. And um, I had too many, so many misses on animals because of equipment yeah that um i finally about early 90s i finally or mid 90s i got into uh um the traditional stuff and i ended up <clears throat> digging up my old 1960s bow out and shooting that for a while recurve mm-hmm. and then i built started building bows yeah and then um and i bought a bob lee recurve which is a that's a super good bow yeah they're and, still turning out great bows oh man and i got to speak with old mr bob lee oh cool and that was super cool and um so anyway it's been about traditional wise i've been mid 90s until mm-hmm. now and i haven't hunted much in with a bow personally f- for haven't shot a bow much i had a rotator cuff surgery about four years ago mm-hmm. and i just haven't really got back into it yet Mm-hmm. But I just got invited to a deer hunt in Ohio. Oh, uh, cool! In uh, November sixth, I don't think I'll be able to go. But I'm like, oh my gosh, uh, that'd be fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's still fall time down there. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> yeah, since I got that, got that whitetail in Canada in Alberta. There, I thought I kind of before before I actually did that and went messing around with those deer. I mean, whitetail hunting at zero. Zero interest, like yeah. Not even you know could care less. But after getting that one, I could I could see I can see that how 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 it's it's fun. Oh, and it's simple hunting. Yeah, it's easier than what we have to go through up here. Mm-hmm. Everything is a everything's a, a pain in the ass up here. Yeah, it's an expedition. Yeah, you know, even going to forty mile caribou, it's the four wheelers and the game bags and and you're still 15 miles off the road mm-hmm. you know you're not walking 30 minutes into your little deer plot and and re- enjoying the morning yeah wake up yeah it's uh that's i mean that's in after moving up here when i was a kid that's the biggest thing i 
that shocked me up here was just the logistics. Everything's a pain, you know. Oh yeah, <clears throat> more effort. Even the little town spots for moose, you know, around here, it's still, you know, got to leave the house two hours before daylight or yep. hour and a half before daylight just to just to be there in time. I mean, growing up, you know, of course, this I don't know. We never. A lot of guys are doing the backpack hunting and camping hunting. I mean, we would always just leave from from our house to go deer or elk hunting in the morning. So that was definitely a logistics. Is yeah, it is a lot different up here with the <clears throat> with the. Uh, it's a lot of work, mm-hmm. and it's just money money wise. It's you know if you want to get a little bit better black bear bait, you pretty much got to have a boat or yep. a four wheeler. Yep, and um, so you got five grand in a four-wheeler or i mean it's just money <laughs> yeah and all same you know same thing then you got to spend six thousand even i mean and that's you know getting the mercury it's not going to you know spend six to ten thousand bucks for an outboard for your 16 footer yeah you know and it, it and gas and maintenance you got to kind of become at least i have come to learn you got to become half mechanic on oh. on that stuff which i hate i hate mechanicing but yep you know, before my old outboard finally went tits up, you know, I was pretty much to where I could fix anything on that that wasn't a major yeah. catastrophe, then had a major catastrophe. <laughs> yeah. But, uh. Did it, blow, uh, motor blow up or the, the oh, it just, well, <clears throat> I, I lost the, I lost the bearings on it. Got Down a new jet. Yeah, yeah. got yeah. a new drive, rebuilt the lower unit, new water, you know, rebuilt the water pump. Oh, didn't rebuild, I just bought one. Okay. Um, new water pump, new drive shaft, new bearings. Um, and it all, I just ordered the new everything with the bearings pressed on there straight from outboard jets. So, you know, I know it was put together right in like less than 30 hours. Um, started giving me signs like my bearings were going, was going out. Mm-hmm. again and so i shut it down and yanked it out and it's this the new one's a double bearing the the original one that was in there was a single bearing this one has two bearings mm-hmm. and it's not the bearing's not fully out but i could you know my impeller was dropping down into the sleeve and i can spin that bearing around the drive shaft and feel it grind a well, little bit for something <laughs> so that's not not good and then well, I had it ripped apart. I'm like, ah, oh, I better, might as well check the compression on this thing. And it has like, like one cylinder has like no compression. Left. Oh, <laughs> and it's yeah. a miracle that it was even running. And I think it already has been, that old motor, I think it's already been rebuilt. You can only get one, they only make, at least from what I found, one, one bigger cylinder, you know, because yeah. you get your standard factory cylinder pistons and then yeah. burn that stuff out, bore out the cylinders, and then you get one bigger you get one bigger size of piston to run in there, and I think they're the bigger ones. So, you already. I need to. I need to just drop it off with somebody and and have them go through it to see if it's worth, if if it's even worth rebuilding or or what. You know, it would be nice to kind of have a spare, right? If it was worth it, but was that the three cylinder? No, it was two cylinder. Oh. Um, two cylinder old like a ninety six Johnson. Oh yeah. Uh, fifty thirty five. Yep. Which <laughs> was nice and lightweight. Um, but man, I like this new one's way, this new Mercury's way better on gas. Oh yeah. Just turn the key. It starts good. Yeah. I haven't had, yeah, and it doesn't take a ton of maintenance, but to keep up on the maintenance, I haven't had a single, one single issue with it. 
you know, in a couple of years. So yep. we'll see. I think I got a year left of the warranty. Yeah. So, but no, nah, just like anything, I think you maintain it and it'll, it'll be good. It is a little intimidating because you just can't, you can't work on them right. the same way you could work on some of these old two strokes and carbureted deals. And Oh, the whole computerized you can plug them into a laptop and know the hours and all yeah, that. Yeah, the hours, how many times it's been started. Yep. <laughs> how many times it's been overheated. Yep. If it has and stuff like that. Yep. Yeah. But, uh, you know, on the, yeah, that's kind of inconvenient stuff you can't do out in the field. But I think overall it makes it easier for the repair. You know, you, they can just dial in exactly what's going on with it, mm-hmm. I think. We just so, had one of the... <clears throat> It's a 50-horse, it's a 50-30 Honda four-stroke jet, mm-hmm. and uh, it's nice. It's pretty quiet. It's it's loud when you're driving, but when you're just idling, it's real quiet. Mm-hmm. And uh, battery start, whole nine yards, it's like, it's a catch-me-all for, for stuff. Um, wouldn't run. Huh. <laughs> and Or you'll run it for an hour, and then you can't start it. And hmm. uh, there's some kind of cooling, gas cooling, something, whatever. So we just, we got to go farm school here. If we run it without the cowling, it runs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it weighs 200 and some pounds. We've had to bring it into town twice. Oh, man. Loading it in the airplane. What a booger. Yeah, that's no fun. And, uh, no fun handling outboards off the, oh, when they're off the boat. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And, and especially an old heavy, or a new heavy one like this. Yeah. It's like, what's, you know, I was like, wonder like what's Stan going to do once sometimes, once he has to has to upgrade to, because there ain't aside from the E tax, I don't know of any other really two strokes that anybody's even making anymore because of the EPA requirements. Yep, <clears throat> that, uh, yeah, those four know. strokes are nice, but they're heavy. Oh, <laughs> I'll tell you a funny one. One year, you know, when the Kenai River shut down all the two strokers here about ten or fifteen years ago, you couldn't have two strokes hmm. for a while, or you know, and then certain horsepowers and all that. Well, Stan was able to buy. Outboards and Kenai for three hundred bucks. Oh these yeah, were, these were old uh, hanger queens that have been sitting in the shed for ten years, hadn't been mm-hmm. running ten years. Three hundred bucks, we'll give it a try. <laughs> we were going through outboards like we had two boats in camp, and these were old thirty-five horse Evan Roods and Johnsons, mm-hmm. and and they're hard starting, and they'd been sitting full of gas for ten years, and they're finicky and stuff like that. Uh, I think he he brought four of them to camp that year. So we'd get two days out of them and they'd die. So we'd just leave them on the riverbank and and use the good boat and put the the dead boat on crossways on across yeah. the other boat, drive it back to camp, and he'd fly in another outboard. <laughs> and uh, so we had motors all over the place. We'd all salute on the way by. Yeah. <laughs> and at the end of the season, it took me a whole boatload to go get all the motors and bring them up to camp and fly them out. But oh, man. They were, it was like $300 motors, and and we were just shaking our heads. And, and it was up. a really poor year. It was a, a really low-water year. Oh. And the river we were in was full of this little flat mica sand. Mm-hmm. And it would just fill up the water jacket and blow up one cylinder. Hmm. Yeah, they'd get the what we're speculating. They'd get the mica. The sand would get in, and it would plug up the outlet, you know, so we'd have to, every time we'd um, have to clean the outlet to make sure we had water flow. And a lot of them have a restrictor on the end. Yeah. 
I just I don't. And we pop every them time out. I've had one of those restrictors, I just pop it out. Yeah, it's like to you know supposedly to increase the pressure. I think in your yep it slows the water flow. Yeah, maybe better heat transfer. Who knows what? But it, but they they plug up so easy. But it would always be on the lower cylinder. If that was hmm. a twin cylinder or a three cylinder, it would always be the lower cylinder would plug up with mud, and hmm. that cylinder would seize up. Because it's oh, not, so it's not, like not it's getting any cooling that. that that sand or whatever is filling up the water jacket yep. above that cylinder, so you're not getting any water movement. And, and that's where speculating. I mean, I'm not a <coughs> boat mechanic, but it was always the lower cylinder that was seized up. Yeah. And, uh, and sometimes you could break them free. I've had to run in on, I just pull the plug on that cylinder and actually pull the plug and it's full of metal. Huh. So, so I'd put a bunch of oil in it and get the motor turned over and, and run in on one cylinder Boy. <laughs> on, on an idle going downstream. Mm-hmm. You couldn't be on step or nothing, but at least you didn't have to wait. You didn't have to float for 10 hours at one mile an hour. Yeah. <laughs> so, Yep. Some of the, there's some, been some pretty ingenious hacks. Ago. I mean, and then you think about how, well, how nice our outboards are now. You read about some of the old ones. There's a book, I think it's called Above the Arctic Circle, about uh, James Carroll, who oh, yeah. moved to Fort Yukon in, like, early 1900s and trapped out of there and stuff like that. Well, it's and Yeah, I've read that book. I've met, you know, there's still a bunch of Carrolls running around Fort Yukon, yep. Yep. Um, his descendants, but they— uh, I remember he talked about what because he, he used to he was would go up the salmon fork to trap or something and have to drag a boat up there with his dogs and yeah it sounds every time I read a guy's deck you know pulling up or dragging boats upstream that just sounds freaking horrible and but he talked about when he first got his like you know twenty five horse or fifteen horse motor yeah and he would it was so bad you know and it was state of the art back then but they'd it'd be enough to get him up to camp. Then he would have to rebuild it Yeah, <laughs> in camp. So he'd bring all the stuff to re, you know, obviously rebuilding the motor back then is a little different than it is now, but yeah. Bring all the stuff to rebuild that motor. Once he got it all the way up. To yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a good book. Oh yeah. It's a phenomenal book. It's got some good names in it and good history and, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, I like the part where the, the guy had the taxi cab in Fort Yukon. He's charging one muskrat hide for a, for a, for a ride. For a ride. <laughs> well, I remember one, well, one of the th- stories in there too is talking about, you know, cause they're trapping and <clears throat> they'd go up in the fall, you know, had his little trapping cabin or whatever. And the chums would run so thick in there. He'd just go out there with a gaff and, and gaff out. hundreds of chums up out and it's getting cold enough, you know, where they're freeze and that's what he'd feed his dogs with all winter. Yeah. And then once everything frees up, he could make runs back into Fort Yukon a few times during the winter. But just tough. I mean, the guy he talked, cause he moved up here when he was like eight, it was yeah, a teenager. Yeah. But he had grown up being a cook in logging camps in Minnesota, I want to say. And yeah. talks about, you know, his journal entries, you know, woke up, you know, 30 below, made biscuits, <laughs> yeah, you know, making biscuits. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, but yeah, he'd go up there and then I remember uh, there's so many different stories he had but he talked about trapping grizzly bears oh they'd still trap grizzly bears back then you know old actual bear traps and i want to say that he he said he quit doing it he got spooked of it because he said they would they would lay down and wait they'd hear you coming and wait for you yeah but they uh you know using a big old bear trap literally like 
chained to a log drag. Yeah, and they, they were lucky if they had a ot six back in those days. They oh yeah, they weren't walking in with three seven five or nothing. No, <laughs> yeah, and they you know, it's a pissed off grizzly bear that's been stuck in a trap for a couple of days. Uh, but he yeah he talked about one that got away from him <clears throat> that he figured picked up the drag, scooped up the drag and just it took off. Took off and I guess some some <clears throat> natives from I don't know what village it was. 30 miles away or so had killed one, killed it, you oh. know, with a big old ice, you know, just, it was in, you know, early winter before den up ice, you know, just fully encrusted and had picked up that law, that drag and just had carried it, with carried him. it with them. Wow. I think, I think it's, if I remember right, that was, I think that's when he said he had had, had enough of grizzly bear trapping. Yeah. I'm going I'm to have to go. I, I know right where that book's at at my house. I got to go get it and. Read that one again. I love those old stories. Yeah, I've got mine somewhere, which mine is not actually mine. Every time I drive by the guy's mailbox, I intend to, like, ah, I should have thrown it in the truck <laughs> to <laughs> stick it back in his mailbox. I yeah. borrowed it from him. But, yeah, that's a good that's a good book. That one, there's not a heck of a lot of those old books that are, I don't know, real as interesting as that, that one and the wolf, you know, Frank, the uh, Alaska's Wolfman book. Yeah. Talk about that one a bunch, but, uh, yeah, getting to, especially once you get to see a lot of the same country, these guys are talking about, it's pretty. It's interesting to, <clears throat> to work through some of the same country that you read about mm-hmm. and, um, and look for things. One of the, my favorite one is that, um, Shadows of the Koyukuk. Oh yeah. By Sidney Huntington. Yeah. I got to meet Sidney when I was working out of Galena, and uh, he was 93 or 94 or whatever, and I got to visit with him just a little bit, but where we hunt up on the Koyukuk is the same country that book's written about, mm-hmm. and one of our guides, uh, Shepard, he found an old cabin up the river, uh, just an outline of a cabin, and I, we've named it Sidney Slough. Uh, mm-hmm. Just a, it's got doesn't have a name, so we named it Sydney Slough, and or I did, and um, I've been only had time one time to look for that cabin, but I wanted to go um, sit on that in that spot and look around a little bit. The one time I was up there and looking around, I did find um, somebody had built a lynx cubby out of some big willows that were about that big around mm-hmm. and leaned them into the tree underneath the spruce tree. And this wasn't Sydney's stuff because Sydney was up there in the twenties and thirties and forties. Mm-hmm. But um, I found a this lynx cubby. Somebody had been up there, and this is thirty miles or so from Hughes, um, on the wrong side of the big mountain. So I don't know who who was up there. Yeah. But it's kind of fun to to see a little bit of history when you, when you, you know when you're looking at history. Oh yeah. Um, in that same country, I found a about a three foot diameter stump. That was cut off flat with the ground, like with a crosscut saw. Mm-hmm. And I, bu- I found that about 15 years ago, but I'm assuming that that stump was probably 30 or 40 year old stump. Yeah. And it, I just I would really love to to know um, who that was. <clears throat> yeah, I know. Uh, one old timer says spot a spot they used to moose hunt. Um, I think they made it into Gates. I think it's in Gates of the Arctic now. Um, they hunted it before it was a park and, uh, which is still a bone of contention with a lot of people. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, they found some on a glassing knob 
And they said, oh, well, we weren't the first people thought it was a good spot. There was oh. sto- stone-cut petrified stumps. Oh. You know. Wow. That's old, there. old stuff. Yeah. And uh, super old. But you asked stuff like, you know, it'd be fun to go goof around, find, see if you could find right where, like, Frank Glasser's cabin on the Savage River was. <clears throat> yep. You and know. um uh, the Black River, the Black Rapids area, if I could figure out where, which cabin he was at. Yeah. Back he, in Rainy Creek or whatever the name of the creek is back in there. Yeah, you know, and they, because he owned the lodge for a while, and I'm assuming it's, you know, those old, what was left, it was those old buildings that were mm-hmm. right by the road. I can't remember if they're still there or if, because yeah. they built a new lodge up the hill. Yep. But then I think I know, you know, where he talked about where he, the government wanted him to get samples of the grizzly bears from that Delta river. Yep. And, uh, he shot like 14 of them in a week or something ridiculous. I, I pretty sure that hill that he got up on is the one it's right next to the road. Yep. Um, cause you do the math, you know, cause he stayed in the one road, Yost road house or something that's no longer there, but you do the math between these different spots yep. and you kind of figure the figure only spot he could have been talking about was yeah. Right up there. Yep. Yep, or it'd be be neat to go the old like box canyon where he <laughs> killed the grizzly bear with his two twenty swift. Yeah. Yeah. You know, stuff like that's kinda neat, which well, I was told showing this my buddies I found that sheep hunting this year. That's in country he could have very well been well, I know he did only ran around chewed that into, flat. I don't know if it was some guy smashing it, you know, the Mount, the neck of that case is all smashed up. Yeah. And uh, I thought about trying to pry it open or sawing it off to see if there's <laughs> something valuable stuck inside, but I don't think. It's heavy. It is heavy. There might be um, somebody's might be gold in there or something. Packed full of gold nuggets. That'd sit that thing on the, that's something you just set on the, set on the windowsill for 30 years and finally cut it open and be, damn it, I could have used that stuff. Yeah, it's full of diamonds or something. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, little. Well, thirty out six case that's I think huh. from the twenty that head stamp I think is from the twenties. Oh, that's cool. So you know, miner or somebody. <clears throat> when I mined, uh, um, I worked at one hundred one mile. Steve, there was a gold mine there back in the seventies, and we we worked. We used to get probably if there was ten ounces of gold, there was five pounds of twenty two bullets. Huh. <laughs> and uh, and thirty round uh, thirty caliber. Bullets, ought six or thirty thirty yeah. or something, but the uh, over the years <clears throat> there's been more uh, more ammunition fired into that creek than there is gold in it. Yeah, right now. <laughs> it, it's pretty interesting. That, oh yeah, that much. Uh, and we found shoe tacks, uh, boot nails. Interesting. Um, uh, it just when every time we did a cleanup, you'd use a magnet and you'd just get a, a pile of uh, what appeared to be tacks out of the old boots. Wow, and uh, but all the twenty-two shells, and I've hunted when there was no mine there. I hunted ptarmigan there as a kid. That same mm-hmm. creek walked up right up that creek and chased ptarmigan around and stuff, and so some of them could have been mine. Yeah, from all my misses, and uh, <laughs> but it's just kind of kind of interesting how much of that man-made stuff is laying out there. Oh yeah, big time. I know. Was it who was? I can't remember who it was. Was telling me they were. <clears throat> running around up in the Brooks range and, you know, get thinking, man, I'm, I might be the first yeah. person to ever walk in this vein and look down there and there, you know, it's, I literally had been thinking that look down there and there's a, um, 
Well, a, a pickaxe head the sticking up, leaning yeah. up like up and like it, you know, the handles all rotted away, like it so, guy had leaned it up against a rock there. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it, yeah, and miss it said to heck with it. I'm hiking out of here. I'm not carrying that out of here. Yeah, something like that. Something. So, yeah, the amount of and back in those days, the amount of work that those guys, you know, so many of them pro, prospectors especially were. <laughs> the, you know, a lot of them had no idea what they were doing. And, you know, and, and the, gr- the amount of ground they were covering. Yeah, the amount of work they did in the ground they covered to get to the places, mm-hmm. you know, it was just unreal. You know, no one today would think about it. <laughs> you wouldn't even consider walking back in, like covering the distances as they did. I think Frank Glasser said he could walk from his cat or from black rapids lodge to his cabin on the savage river in like two or three days or something like that yep which is across the whole central alaska range basically yeah and that was in the fall time with no trail yeah you know just whatever just walk across <laughs> yeah <laughs> and hit the rib but yeah them guys did that. that that whole thing where frank was following the caribou herd out of the and the whites and the it? whites and following them all the way to chicken yeah basically and just spending a month staying with them yeah whatever time it took well that was when he walked well, i think when he said he walked his dog in into the ground his dog wouldn't walk anymore had to carry it <laughs> <laughs> yeah and a lot of them old timers they were just set one of my old mining bosses used to carry the mail by snowshoe from allness mm-hmm. to live and good back then it, there was it's like 60 miles across there so it was a, a three-day walk Jeez. 20 miles a day and then 20 miles back and he did it for part of a winter and back then it was a trail that was yeah. uh packed but he he walked it and uh and there was roadhouses mm-hmm. so you just you made it 20 miles to a roadhouse and yeah that's how it was like the valdez trail because there wasn't yeah there wasn't this getting to anchorage you know there was no parks right because they didn't what was it the 70s that they put the parks through yeah it wasn't because my dad said when he was a kid, basically it was just brand new before, when my grandpa died in like 73 or so, mm-hmm. it was just brand new. Yep. But yeah, you'd have to go go to Anchorage oh, the long way. So that Valdez Trail, there's even some cool, <clears throat> some cool old cabins. One guy was showing me a, an old ice house that oh. was right on the old Valdez Trail that they'd store ice in. Right. You know, but yeah, there was a lot of. A lot of places along there because you had to have a roadhouse every a day's walk, basically. Wasn't it in that book from Carol that they had to walk from Fort Yukon to Fairbanks for a trial? Or yeah, something? I remember that. Everyone was was not happy about that. They it was some murder trial or something, something and they they subpoenaed everybody in Fort Yukon had to, had to go. It to, was like a big. <laughs> it was a big deal. Had to had to come to Fairbanks for this trial. Yep. You know, and there was roadhouses all along the way. Yeah. So you could make it from, some of them weren't the best. Uh, I think I remember him reading, reading about them. Picking lice out of the sheets and stuff. Yeah, and the cooking. You never really knew what you were eating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're eating whatever. In kind of yeah. a modern story, there was a trapper down at the Cause Jacket about, in the 30, about 30 years ago. A guy that, one of the end of the rotor guys that just shows up, moves mm-hmm. out to trap, doesn't, not really prepared, but he was starving. And um, so the guys that were living on the Cosna, as they would come by, they'd visit with him and maybe give him some food and all that. Mm-hmm. Kind of, but this may be kind of bad, but they used to, 
the guy that I was talking to, they said that every time he'd pull in, the guy would offer him something to eat. You know, being a, he if he was cooking something, he always offered something. But anyway, Frank, the guy that I was talking to, said every time he'd count, he'd pull in, he'd count how many dogs were in a tied up in the front. Yeah. <laughs> Make sure the guy wasn't eating his dogs. Oh man. <laughs> Yeah, that's, I don't, I think that that, you know, you don't hear about it too much, but even this day you hear some people kind of wanting to go, I mean, this is the kind of the land of, oh, want to go off and do your own thing, which you can't, a lot of people, first they realize that it isn't exactly like that. You can't just go do whatever you want to do. Not anymore. Not anymore, you no. know. No, it used to be. You could go hide, go off and hide up and. In- or get permission from a trapper to use a trap line, and, yep. and now you—it's just you just can't seem to and homestead and stuff like that. Like you know, yeah. it's just yeah. You wonder all the a lot of I, I, it, it's, it's understandable people being unprepared because you just have no idea what to even ex- oh. what to even expect. You know, I mean, the McCandless kid that died in that in the bus was—I mean, yep. grossly unprepared. You know, I had no idea, and even yeah. Yeah, I mean, even uh, yeah. Well, I, and that's it, a whole mess. But. And it's understandable. I'd, uh, I would probably be in trouble if I moved to the desert for it take yep. me a few months to figure out. Oh yeah, or a year to figure out. Um, figure out what's the smart going on, stuff. How, how not to die. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Up here, we get we got it figured out how not to die. You know, don't poke the bear. Yeah, you're okay, <laughs> and stuff like that. But down in the desert, you're fighting. My best one, a good buddy of mine. He's from Florida, and uh, they're flooded down there. So every and he's trying to deer hunt. So every day he's kicking water moccasins out of the trail in front mm. of him. And we were just talking. What's worse, bears or water moccasins? <laughs> yeah, I'm not a snake guy. Which I'm going to Africa next week, and it'll. Uh, yeah, I'm not too worried. I'm not worried about it. But I'm not not a fan. Of, I don't need to get yeah. nailed in the ball sack by some puff adder or some <laughs> black mamba or something. <laughs> but yeah, it's a. Uh, yeah, just totally different places, and it's a different place up here. It's, they, I mean, it wasn't that long ago you could homestead. I remember my dad or my uncle talking about when they were kids, you could homestead on out on Farmer's Loop. You can go yeah. put a fence around it, and it's. And my guess, my grandpa said, "Why the hell would anyone want to live way out there?" Oh. You know, and now you know your land'd be worth oh millions. Yeah, you know, out here where I, out here where we live, I mean, was you know, come out here. Duck, there was nobody out here. Right. Well, that whole, like, the from Hagelbarger, Engineer Creek uh, is north of the north of it there. Um, the dredge had run up Engineer Creek a little bit, and then mm-hmm. where Goldmine Trail is yep. up now, that was where we trapped. Mm-hmm. And there was, and there's, and we had to snowshoe up there. You couldn't get a snow machine up there in those days. Yeah. Because you couldn't get across Engineer Hill. And there was other guys that trapped from Gilmore Trail over the top a little bit and stuff like that but that was wild country man yeah. we, could, we could go up there and get lost for a week and and never run into a person and now it's a paved road <laughs> yeah everywhere and uh, same with this country here was coming out into this country to go moose hunting mm-hmm. and now everybody here has to go chattanooga valley to go moose hunting if they want pretty wild right on the edge of the wild country and even now you know like just the amount of if I remember right, Goldstream Road wasn't in from Fox yeah. this way. Sheep Creek could come around, mm-hmm. but the first year they opened up Goldstream Road, it was a moose hunter's heaven. Oh, I bet. The yeah. guys were just having a grand, t- grand time. Yeah, it's changed quite a bit. Yeah. And, and the country's changed. Uh, 
a lot. We're you know talking about history. A friend of mine lives up at Ambler, mm-hmm. and he said, <clears throat> "Who's that, Dave Rue?" Yeah, Dave, and he said yeah. it's just changed so much uh, because people have to leave for work. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to go where the work is, and um, and so the the whole the villages have changed quite a bit, and. Um, Places I've been are just really beautiful. Hughes, this village of Hughes is kind of in a pretty spot. Yeah. And um, they used to have a, it used to be a central area for Wayne Alaska Airlines had two or three or had a couple of Cessna 180s there for mm-hmm. as part of the moving people around back in the 50s. Mm-hmm. And it was a vibrant town, a couple of uh, trading posts. And, and now it's just, there's nothing there. There's two paid positions in town, the postmistress and the school teacher and Actually, three with a contractor for the runway, and it's just kind of sad how the the rural Alaska is is so poor. Yeah, it seems it seems like that. I mean, I wasn't around, so I don't know. I would imagine that that back, I don't know whether it's a centralization of stuff. You know, you had to have more infrastructure in each of those towns, I think, to make it work back in the days, mm-hmm. back in older days. Um, but yeah, it's definitely it seems like a lot of areas have depopulated. Yep. You know, not near as many people kind of living the old way. Right. You know, trapping and because that's you know some some guys some areas guys still do it and like make a significant good Martin country guys will make uh, you know on good years make a lot of money Martin trapping and that's right. you know traditionally that's how they. Yep. You you know you go go to fish camp in the summer and hunt moose in the fall and yeah. trap in the winter and and make a life out of it yeah you grow your garden yeah and um but it's just not this quite the same anymore um all the lots of the little places if they're down in the uh, Cusquim country you know um um what's the first little town out of Diderod and McGrath, there's another little town in there. Anyway, they were all vibrant little towns, mm-hmm. and there was gold mining nearby, and there was commercial fishing on the river, and and now it's just you know no fishing, no mining, yeah, uh, no family type stuff. Yeah, uh, family you, mining and family fishing. Yeah, all kind of consolidated into more commercial stuff. Yep, bigger. So kind of. Yeah, you look at it, one of the older maps, and I mean, there is, I mean, more than hundreds of villages. Yeah. And little towns all over the place, you know, and of course some of, you know, as stuff modernized, some of them got moved from, you mm-hmm. know, they were all in the, in specific spots for specific reasons, you yep. know, that's why people lived there because the food was there. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then stuff got moved around and I, you know, I don't know all the dynamics of it, but it's pretty sad to see. Yep. And it's just not as much going on out there yep. um, for the guys. I was working out of Hughes and it, what was interesting was uh, the guy was telling me he can barely afford to buy enough gas to go check his traps. What well, cost yeah. him a hundred dollars to fill up the snow machine out there? Yeah. So you got to come up with a hundred dollars and then go out and try to catch more than a hundred dollars worth more of than fur. Dollars worth of fur, which you know, it, when it goes bad, it's bad for three weeks. Yeah. There's no fur for three weeks. Yeah. When if it gets cold or something. Yeah. And, uh, so you got to <clears throat> you. You got to catch five hundred dollars worth of fur a day if you're yeah. if spending a hundred dollars on gas. Yep, no kidding there. It's a little bit tougher, but but anyway, I don't think future's not all grim. No, 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 not at <laughs> it's all. Nice to nice to be nice to be living here. Are you looking at uh, you looking at 
opening back up for shop for spring bear hunting? Uh, probably not for me. All? Yeah. Um, just for family. Yeah. Um, all my family's in town right now, all the kids. Yeah. And so um, I'm going to be a professional grandpa. Yeah. Nice. Bear hunter. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That'll be fun. Yeah, it's probably the same with moose hunting. I'm trying to put together a moose hunt for my son and son-in-law for next year. Yeah, for I'd, September. Nice. That'll be that'll be fun. I'd as my, I'd love to be up there, <clears throat> up there helping Stan out. I just find it seems like uh, I don't know if probably just a season in life, but got so doggone busy, and then it's like uh, you know I gotta put got it this year. I desperately needed to throw moose in the freezer, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't know. That was the one nice thing that I've liked about. It. I haven't shot a moose since nineteen. Oh, but you still get your meat. <laughs> we still yeah. get the meat, and yeah, not all the meat, but um, most of the guys don't want all. You know, eight hundred pounds of moose meat. Yeah, and because um, they're trophy hunters, and there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, and, but so we get to for like for that deal, we get to hunt in a really cool spot, um, looking at big moose, and and end up with the meat at the end of the season. Yeah. It's a pretty cool spot to go moose hunting. I mean, if uh, you know, most of the stuff I've done is around town, and it's a totally different ball game. Oh yeah. When you get out there and do some real moose hunting. Yep. Yeah, and we have there's a, there's other private people that hunt out there, mm-hmm. and uh, and it bothers some of the guides um, that to know that there's a a rafter floating thirty river miles down river. It bugs them. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> that river, it's just it's so far out that that's usually we're the only ones on the river. Yeah. And. Uh, which is, I love it. The, the one that we hunted up off the Kobuk years ago, I loved it because it was 30 mile a river. We could run with boat mm-hmm. and because of waterfalls and different things, it was my river. It was just nice to, y- y- I was there four or five seasons and I never heard an airplane go over in five seasons. That's saying something there. Yep. It's off of the air paths where people normally mm-hmm. come and go and there's no reason for anybody to poke their nose up in there and look around. Yeah. Oh, there is, but it's just out of the way. It's out of the way. Nobody did. So it was, if you saw a set of boot tracks that were a year old on a sandbar, they were mine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who the heck else is up here? I've done that getting lost, turned around on a fog neck, hunting deer, you know, and even, I'd even had a GPS with me and I walking around all of a sudden in the snow, I see boot tracks. I'm like, who the hell else is up here? Right now? Yeah. I realized it was mine. <laughs> Put yours next to it. Yeah. yeah, they were mine. I just walked in a circle. <laughs> the worst lost I ever got was in Minnesota deer hunting one time. Overcast day, Minnesota looks just like Fairbanks, birch yeah. and alder. Flat, flat light. You can't see the sun. And I knew that it was a lake, a road, and a slough, about one mile on each deal. Yeah. I was out in that in that triangle for four hours before I finally hit one of those because I would, I couldn't maintain a straight line. Yeah. And, well, it's uh, tough. And you think you're, you know, in this stuff like tracking, tracking bears and they're like coming back to the boat after you're tracking a bear or something. Yep. Is seem is the, the most easily disoriented. I, I can get, I don't know how many times, you know, you think you're walking in a straight line and then you all of a sudden you've walked in a circle. Oh, you know, especially if it's after midnight and the sun's down, you know, you, you don't, yep. you can't see that, you know, glow of the sun and all, you know, getting them alder patches, everything looks the same. And <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yep. The, um, this year we had, <clears throat> we went in after a moose at dark and I didn't really want to go in after it, but the hunter was real adamant about giving it a try. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wanted to let the moose lay overnight and 
try to Mess find him in the morning, morning and yeah. spend the whole time. But anyway, and of course the GPS, I I like to follow my tracks as a backup deal, so you don't get end up something weird in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. And, and it was pitch black when we finally turned around. And but the one thing I did do is I use that I use a technology called uh, GS what do they call GST. Giant spruce tree. Oh yeah, <laughs> I spotted on the way in. I turned around and just I make a habit of doing this. I turn around and look and try to pick up some super good landmarks. Yeah, and uh, which probably most everybody does. But but anyway, I remember spotting that tree, and the, of course the last four hundred yards is through the alders and the willows, and mm-hmm. you pop out on the beach and then the grass, and there's a little trail from the beavers, and you walk. 20 feet down the trail and there's the boat tied up yeah. right there <laughs> i hit that one dead on a mile away yep which that's is, that's yeah. pretty nice there that's when you you lay on a, a subtle brag or oh that's what yeah let that guy know who's you know what you're doing <laughs> well that's why i told actually when i'm guiding i'm trying to some people don't aren't good in the woods mm-hmm. and so i try to spend that whole it's a 10-day hunt i try to spend that 10 days teaching people stuff oh yeah well it makes it makes it interesting too because a lot of times yeah. moose hunting is pretty boring <laughs> oh yeah yeah and uh but like we collect chaga yeah make chaga tea out in the woods and and just spot things that look interesting and i carry a tape measure in my pocket so every bear track i see i measure it and and look at things and i try to some guys really like it some guys aren't interested you know yeah. they're just like man whatever <laughs> find me Find me a track with a moose standing in it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of, most, most people are pretty interested in doing that. And I love sharing. Oh, like yeah. That. And uh, Well, there's a lot of cool, awesome knowledge like that. I mean, it's takes a long time to accumulate on yourself and it all, you know, it it'll, makes oh, yeah. you, makes you better all around. Oh, yeah. Outdoorsman, the, the more you observant you are and the more things you can pick up on. Yeah. And just showing, teaching, uh, Actually, my hunter this my moose hunter this year was a young seventeen uh, year old girl, and her dad had brought her on a moose hunt for a graduation present or nice. something. And he wasn't doing the hunting; she was doing the hunting. So she was really fun to. There'd be a the big ball of grass up in the willows where the river had flooded, mm-hmm. so it was really nice to point out that last year our boats were up here. Yeah, <laughs> when we were driving through here and stuff like yep. that, and and just you see fun things and beaver chews and and t- talk about fun things one of my favorite uh one of my biggest scares in the whole world is to come back to the boat and find where a beaver chewed off the willow that was tied to oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh man yeah i can't say i've had that one happen i've thought about that before though yep. i mean i don't know i one of our guys did have it happen but the beaver chewed it an inch above the rope oh geez <laughs> he came back and it was chewed off man yeah that's uh <laughs> that's one thing like sitting in a bear bait i'm always paranoid i i always my uncle had told me had told me this story probably multiple times as i'm getting into driving river boats and stuff so oh, you, got, you always got to tie your boat off good yeah you know and if it's <clears throat> even better you know tie it and put your anchor wrap your anchor Around over, stop. over a tree or yep. stump or something and you know and had this story involving him just pulling his boat up on a gravel bar and then fishing and having to swim after his boat and oh i had uh one year was like the first the maiden voyage for the spring with my dad's boat making sure everything was running good before we went out and started doing stuff and had a couple buddies and we pull over to look at something and jump out and my buddy's tying it to this dead 
limb on, you know, dead alder or something like that. And I'm, I take the rope from him. No, so we got to tie this thing off good. And I'm literally telling him this, oh, cause so-and-so, and I'm like tying it off or, and I'm pulling on the rope and I'm pulling the rope in and the boat keeps going farther and farther away. And it's on this cut bank. <laughs> And then I see the D, you know, the clip, you know, I I'd, I'd, had just some cheap, you know, snap clip on for the clipping onto the bow. And I see the clip. <laughs> it's not on the boat. Oh, no. <laughs> so I had to jump in. I think I jumped and I, I got a hold on the initial jump. I got a hold of the <laughs> of the bow and, you know, was only wet from the waist down, pulled myself in. and <laughs> But, yeah, sit and be sitting in the tree stand and. Oh, I've, I know guys that have had bears climb in their boat. I try to be real careful about not leaving any bait in the boat. If I have to extra bait and I don't want to disturb stuff, I'll throw it up on the bank yeah. while I'm sitting and then haul it in afterwards. But I've had gri- a grizzly cubs one time banging on the side of my boat. I could hear them banging on it and ran out there. And, yeah. But aside from, I'm just paranoid of a bear getting in my boat and chewing up my fuel line or something, or something. like that. And uh, just breaking stuff, getting in there and getting spooked and breaking something, you know. Is, I've I've had them in the boat several times. Yeah, black bears and uh, guiding a, a hunter, and he's hard of hearing, so hard of hearing, you just about had to yell at him to. But he's a good shot. He's a bow hunter. But anyway, you climb up the tree stand, and then I have to get in the hanging stand, and then mm-hmm. he comes up the tree stand, and I told him if I hear a bear in the boat, I'll have to go. Yeah. So we got, as soon as we're in a stand, we got bears underneath us and they're uh, five foot sows. Mm-hmm. And I hear ding, ding, ding in the boat. <laughs> the, the bear apparently was trying to paddle the boat. And uh, and I had to tell him, I had to almost yeah. scream at him. I've got to go. <laughs> I've got to go. And so I, and I chased the bear out. And then about 20 minutes later, another, uh, same or different bear, I don't know, uh, in the boat. So I go back down, and I, the boat, the bear jumps out of the boat up on the bank, standing right in front of me, about twelve foot away. Yeah. And so I just give him kind of a bum's rush, trying to shake him up. Yeah. Well, all it did was he just went, and then he gave me the bum's rush, <laughs> and I'm like, oh man, I guess I yeah. should. Should've. That's always the perfect scenario because you're, <laughs> you know, at least the spots I'm on, usually you're popping out. Out popping out of the thick brush right at the, the boat. boat, yeah, so, within ten or twelve foot. Of so the boat. you're between them and the woods. Yep, yeah. I gave that bear the. I gave him just a shake like that, and he gave me a shake back, and I was like, "Oh no!" So I grabbed a limb and just uh, will a limb, and I just rattled it at him really hard. <laughs> <laughs> and he finally was like, "Okay, I'm out of here." Oh man, yeah. My dad had has hunting with a, a couple buddies one time. Had him in this this one bait. It was. They had to climb a huge, a real tall cut bank to get up there. So he also he carried a little extension ladder in his boat, and so he'd pull the boat up, tie it off, and throw the extension ladder up to get on top of the bank. It was about ten feet up, uh-huh. at least with the water level. And they had been in there and were set up on the ground. And there was a sow, a black bear sow with cubs that wouldn't leave, you know, wouldn't leave and huffing at them and being pretty aggressive. So they figure out we'll go back to the boat and give her an hour to let her Fill move up, off. Yeah. Well, I think they the way it happened, they'd climbed back in the boat, and then all of a sudden, boar popped up. They're sitting in the boat, and a boar popped up over the edge of the cut bank. And so <laughs> one guy shot it with four, 450 Marlin. The thing starts spinning around right there. My dad's like, thing's going to fall in the boat. <laughs> you know, he ended up not. I don't think he'd fell in the boat, but 
It was pretty, pretty touch and go there for a minute. And then, then before you know it, you're shooting holes in the boat. <laughs> oh yeah. You see where the guys are shooting ducks and are landing in the boat. It'd be a little different story if a bear plops in when you, oh. <laughs> a whole lot of, it'd be a whole lot of story going on there. Yeah. You ain't kidding there. I don't know. I don't know what to do. My dad's got a pretty big boat. My boat would be. <laughs> it'd swamp it. <laughs> yeah. It would be a. A pretty pretty panicked situation, but yeah, leaving leaving the boats all. I've never had never had a beaver chew down the one it's tied to. But whenever I leave it and I got to go in the woods, I tie it good, and then I'll and I'll also wrap my anchor around yeah. something. Usually, I always tie it and throw the anchor out. Yeah, yeah. Um, we don't have anchors up there where we moose hunt, and that bothers me. Yeah, but <clears throat> on my boat, man, it's the same thing. I I that because if nothing else, that anchor will slow it down getting away so yeah so i don't want it to get away but that's a big scare for me is a uh, losing the boat losing the boat yeah we did lose i almost lost a boat one time moose hunting where uh, the guy shot a moose and it ended up in the water so we had to skin the whole thing in whatever boot hit boot water in a swamp it wasn't mm-hmm. even clear water and um I spent the whole day skinning, and we got it. We shot him at nighttime. Pulled a, we gutted him out in the water, and actually he floats like a canoe. If you gut him out real careful and open yeah. him up, they float like a canoe pretty good. <clears throat> but so the next morning, uh, dressing him out, and um, the um, took the whole day to do it. Well, I didn't realize it, but the river was rising, and I had just pulled. We had an inflatable raft with a jet motor on it. Pulled it up on a sandbar real good. Luckily, the hunter was carrying the moose out, and every time we got to the boat, he'd drop it in the boat, so it made it heavier and yeah. heavier. But when I finally, at the end of this, I was in there six or eight hours, because we had to cape him and everything. I couldn't get the cape and the head and the horns out of the water. I just yeah. had to cape him in the water in the whole nine yards. And by the time we got him out, I'd been six or seven hours in there, and the, the boat had moved down the beach about 20 feet. Oh. And we couldn't carry the whole moose on one trip so we left half the moose up high and dry on the sandbar um and made a trip to camp Mm -hmm. and when i came back all the the water had risen maybe a foot or more wow in um in that 10 hour period or so the quarters were gone the water had got high enough that it grabbed the quarters and put them down to in the water but what what's interesting was they sank so i and it was a clear water creek so i just floated down and i found all the quarters within about 100 yards yeah laying on the bottom of the in three foot of water mm-hmm. laying on the bottom of the creek and was able just to get them and get them out and you know we dried them off and everything was fine but that and if i had lost that boat it would have been it would have been a 10 river mile hike back, <sighs> back to camp pl- upstream Plus the the boat would have been all the way out to Kotzebue Yeah, <laughs> by the time anybody found it. Oh man, yeah, that's that's touch and go there. <laughs> well, speaking yeah, or something of like that sinking those quarters reminded me. Some of the guys down on Fognac had told me, you know, had told me if the weather was hotter, you know, out like it had sunk deer carcasses before in the salt water. Yeah, to to keep them if they had to leave them overnight wouldn't let the bears get them and it said it seemed to work okay you yeah yank the guts out and then that salt water is like kind of like a brine almost <laughs> we've had deer hanging on the back of boats for three four days yeah and 
and the, in bad seas, and the, the they would actually dip in the, in the water. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's only forty degrees out. Yeah. And they're hanging with the hides on and everything, but so they spent three days back there dipping about every yeah. <laughs> every five minutes or every however many. <laughs> and um, we would put him. It was November. Got him in the back of a pickup. Drove to Fairbanks. It was like twenty below, and we got home. So we had a pickup load with ten deer in it, froze solid. <laughs> it took us about four days to thaw them out and get them out of the back of the truck. Oh man, <laughs> that's funny. No. Well, I guess we're getting along here pretty good. Um, probably better okay. better to let you get back to it. But, man, it's been good catching up with you, Jeff. And yeah. I appreciate you coming over. We'll have to have to do it again now that we broke the ice. we got a long winter ahead of us. So. Uh, uh, we should do this over a campfire. Yeah. There you yeah. go. Light be, a campfire somewhere. Be even perfect. Yeah. Next time we'll have to do that. i gotta got a pit back, back out here when the weather's not quite as drizzly and bum as it is right now. Yeah. Yeah, string a tarp, get the old blue tarp strung up or something. The rest of my day's on a roof, so I'm oh, uh, fixing. <laughs> That's why you were so anxious. To yeah, I was, I was hoping for snow because I'm not going up there for start snowing. Yeah, until snow quits. But yeah, but well, uh, looks anyway. like I'm going to have to just get her done. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> well, anyway, hope you're hope you're safe and have a good rest of the day. And you uh, bet. Yeah, thanks for coming over and. Uh, and for our listeners, thanks for thanks for listening. If you enjoy the podcast, appreciate it if you give a good review on iTunes or whatever platform you listen on. And also want to thank our uh, Patreon supporters. It definitely helps a lot uh, to have your support. And if you want to be a supporter, you can um, find that at uh, patreon.com slash Tundra Talk. Anyway, I'll shut up. Thanks for listening. <laughs>